Hello, welcome back to Kino Inferno Season DOS. We're back, Ooh. bitches. It's your favourite. Nobody could see that, but <laughs> he's already interrupted the spiel. He's already ruined season two. <laughs> it's my co-host Mark Smith. <laughs> ah, it's good to be back. It's good to be interrupting you midway through your little your little intros. Yeah, and I'm Aiden. This is Kino Inferno, your favourite movie podcast. Uh, Mark's already ruined it. I feel bad now. I feel like I've completely derailed you. No, it's fine. It's That's fine. fine. It's it fine. means it could be the Mark time to shine. Hi, guys. Welcome back. I'm Mark. Yeah, um, listen to that what culture training. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, we're sponsored by what culture? <laughs> so anything if offensive if we say anything offensive please write to them and not us but no we are back for season two um this is coming out so everyone on the facebook already knows what every episode of this season is going to be because this episode is coming out after the 12 days of kino event where we have released titles and screenshots and all sorts of lovely shit so you already know Paul Blart Mall Cop is, is on its way, riding its Segway it's towards you, as is Drop Dead Fred. Um, and some <laughs> I good like news. Why are you focusing too. on my choices? <laughs> well, I didn't say that. The listeners didn't know they're your choices. Oh, okay. oh, shit. Gave away my hand too quickly, though. Yeah, you did. Little bitch. Little <laughs> <a> bitch. <laughs> <laughs> this season's already a shambles, okay? <laughs> But yeah, we're not talking about that shit today. We're talking about some good movies. Uh, well, are they good? Because as you know, um, on this podcast we have a binary rating system. If you're a new listener, well, sorry about this opening two minutes. If you're a new listener, this must be pro- <laughs> if you're a new listener, you've turned off and you're listening to Camo the Mate or something like that. But to the five, if you're a returning be- listener, I'm also sorry for this intro. <laughs> no, the returning listen, the returning listeners are nasty slurs. They know what they're in for. <laughs> They like Healthy. this. They like this. <laughs> um, yeah, no, today we're talking about two movies from auteur, direct, auteur directors. Um, you have to say auteur like you're, you've just caught your nuts in your zip. Auteur. Uh, auteur. Auteur. Yeah, okay. um, no, auteur. Yeah. Auteur. Um, <laughs> Yeah, new listeners. I again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Blame the old listeners. They've let us get away with this for too long. They've praised yeah, us actually, for this. That's a very good point. They've praised us for this. Um, <laughs> that's very true, actually. <laughs> but no, listen. Right, come on. Some semblance of order in the chaos. We are covering two um, what we've kind of called unconventional heist movies. Although it might be more accurate to say they're kind of caper films because. I mean, our first movie is kind of a, a reverse heist. They're not stealing anything. They're putting a thing in a thing. What kind of crazy director would do a, a reverse movie? Certainly not Christopher Nolan. <laughs> a movie about people being reversed, or a movie that plays in reverse? Surely not him. Um, no, he does that a lot. That's the joke, listeners. He loves to reverse time. Um... But also, we're doing uh, the other movie we're doing is also kind of a heist movie, but also kind of not really because it's a sting operation, really, the Jackie Brown mm. thing. 
Although it's um, so we're doing Inception and Jackie Brown. That's why I'm beating around the bush here for. Um, so yeah, these are kind of movies that we felt like used the mechanics of a heist movie um, to their own ends in various different ways. And if you're a new listener, what we do is we talk about these movies for an inordinate amount of time, compare, contrast, probably throw in a few dick jokes along the way, bad impressions, I occasionally sing. Um, some, like uh, characters that we've killed off that sometimes come back. Have we killed off any characters? Uh, the, we killed the legal advice bird, I don't remember. Oh yeah, he died. Also Rudolph, and... the red-nosed reindeer, died last season as well. Lest we forget. That's true. But they never found a body. They never found a body. No. I need to find out if Henry's dead. I'm not sure. Oh, the Portuguese twink. Yeah, the one I met in that ski lodge. (laughs) Oh, yeah. He only likes Meryl Streep. Yeah, I used to feed him cheese and crackers under the door, but I've not heard anything from him for a while. Hmm. Probably Mm. go check on him whilst we play the uh, intro to Inception. Okay. Yeah, I should probably. All right, well, uh, first up, we're doing Inception. Imagine you're designing a building, right? You consciously create each aspect. But sometimes it feels like it's almost creating itself, if you know what I mean. Yeah, like I'm discovering it. Genuine inspiration, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in a dream, our mind continuously does this. We create and perceive our world simultaneously, and our mind does this so well that we don't even know what's happening. That allows us to get right in the middle of that process. How? By taking over the creating part. Now, this is where I need you. You create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their subconscious. How could I ever acquire enough detail to make them think that it's reality? Well, dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. Wow. <laughs> okay. From the mind of auteur Christopher Nolan comes a wacky caper about Dom Cobb, played by Leo DiCaprio and his crack team of dream thieves, attempting to do the supposedly impossible and plant an original idea into the mind of Robert Fisher Jr., an energy magnate whose rival has hired our, our anti-heroes to subconsciously persuade him to disband his father's energy empire. Yeah, simple as always from Nolan. It soon becomes clear that Cobb and the lads have their work cut out for them, as Fisher is slightly more prepared than they first thought, and Cobb's vengeful dead wife follows them through the various levels of the subconscious mind that they travel through. Can Cobb pull off one last job, squaring things with his employers and finally getting to return to his children in America, or will his constant blunders and the raising stakes get the better of him? Boarm. Boarm indeed. So, yeah, I mean, we'll go over the plot a little bit more uh, substantively than that as we go through the movie, I suppose. I mean, I'm assuming... we will say that Aiden will be going over the plot because I have only just finished watching this. I've well, yeah, I, I was before. going to say, I think Mark is the only person who hasn't seen this movie before. Um, I'm assuming most of our listenership will have seen this because pretty much everyone on Earth saw this when it came out, apart from yourself. I just didn't um, see it. I, just, I don't know. Just I saw the trailers and was like, that looks cool. Never saw it. Mm. Well, we I should have. probably... Uh, yes, yeah, so, first things first. A little bit of housekeeping. Uh, this movie features the actor Elliot Page. 
who has obviously recently come out as a trans I say recently, it's about a year ago, maybe a couple of years ago, come out as a transgender man, so, uh, you know, assigned female at birth, but has transitioned since. Um, for the sake of the listener's ease, we are going to be referring to the actor as he, him. Those are his preferred pronouns. But the character he plays in this movie, uh, Ariadne, is female. So we'll be referring to the character as she, her. Um, we decided that this was the best way to handle this. I hope you agree, because that's what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably the fairest way of going about doing it. Yeah, because the character is still a woman. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's just the, the actor is now publicly male, let's say. Um, yeah. I'm mostly saying that in case we do slip up in a way that I can't catch in the edit. Um, these, so, these things do happen. So. These things do happen, and obviously, no offense, meant We love and respect the trans community. And Big we shout also out to love Elliot Page as well because we Page do love Elliot Page, and we're happy that he's living. I've his... ever seen him in. I've always liked him. So. Yeah, I, we're happy he's living his best life. All I will say about the uh, the Elliot Page transition scenario is that now the movie Juno is a hell of a watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that is um, that's something. It's a movie about a man playing a pregnant girl now, which is interesting. Um, I mean, I was always really freaked out by the idea of Elliot Page and Michael Sarah having sex. Anyway, yeah. I mean, Michael Sarah. I don't think Michael Sarah really has sex. I think he's like he can. He like kind of shoots out a little egg or something, and that goes into. The <laughs> he's the one that lays the egg. Yeah. Yeah. He's kind of like a seahorse, I think. Um, <laughs> Anyway, the seahorsiness. I, I like that we've we've just been like very you know nice and supportive about Elliot Page, and then immediately swung around to being like Michael Sarah as a sexless freak. Um, <laughs> I'd like to point out that you swung around to that and then called him a seahorse. Well, you were the one who said that, that him having sex with Elliot Page was a nightmare. It just it just is though. <laughs> like, prove me wrong. Anyway, that aside. Um, did you just shoot out little seahorse, little seahorses with Michael Sarah's face on. I did. Uh, I, I did read somewhere that um, to, just to round things back to Inception, someone making the point that uh, Nolan casts so few women in his films that one of his only female characters is actually a man. Um, <laughs> I don't know how fair. I don't know how fair that criticism is, but it, but it made me chuckle. I mean, that's great. <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, yeah, anyway, big shout out to, uh, to Elliot Page. So, um, Mark, you've never seen this film before. I hadn't, no. And for new listeners who have stuck it out this far, um, <laughs> Good on we you. here on Kino Inferno, we have a little tradition when one of the uh, hosts, that is me and Mark, haven't seen one of the movies we're talking about, we will not discuss our opinions Explicitly, anyway, until the mics are on. I, we usually have a bit of a sense of what the other person's going to say. Yeah, um, we'll sort of text each other little sort of tidbits of info or like general impressions, just so yeah. we're not sort of just so we can kind of give this chaos some semblance of structure and order. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Mike, on hey. first blush, before we go into the deep dive, what are your thoughts on Christopher Nolan's? 2010 sci-fi heist dream caper movie inception go i've kind of got an interesting relationship with this movie now in the sense that you know that i'm not the biggest champion of christopher nolan 
Um, right. A lot of his stuff leaves me cold. And I feel like this movie also did that. However, I enjoyed it. I found it somewhat compelling. I think it's pretty okay, is what I'm going to say. It's pretty okay. I do have some major issues with it that are more just on like a personal basis, but um, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was good. Mm, it was good. Glowing praise. Good-ish. Good-ish. <laughs> good he, he, he can't give Nolan a good. No, um, no, 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 no. I, I, there's some Nolan movies I like. I think The Dark Knight's good. I think Dunkirk is good. I think The Prestige is good. Mm, the Prestige. Dark Knight Rises is a crackhead movie. What if man disappear? actually what? man clone <laughs> yeah exactly um, what if man break back but not actually break back but this movie what, we're what asking man have silly voice and crash play crashing this plane oh, one thing right the biggest thing I'm just going to get this out of the way now okay I think this could be my favourite Christopher Nolan movie because this is the only one of those films that Tom Hardy is in where I can actually see his handsome handsome face and he didn't have a stupid voice he does have a bit of a stupid voice, but to be fair, it's his own stupid voice, so it's fine. Yeah, I feel like his character in this movie is a lot more kind of knowingly camp. His character is actually the best part of the movie, in my opinion. He's a, he's a lot of fun to watch. He's the only character well, in the movie that I really gave a shit about. Both of these movies, I think we can do character rankings on later on, so we'll, we'll park that for a minute. Um, <laughs> you're right, just adjusting your mic there. Yeah, I was hoping I didn't, <laughs> didn't pick it up on the, <laughs> the edit. <laughs> um... Yeah, so we can do character rankings for these for both of these movies, I think. So both of them, I think, require a going over of the characters. But just to start with, let's just take a little journey through Inception. So I think the first thing to say... Um, now, this movie, I don't have heaps and heaps of research on like I normally do with my choices. But one thing that I did want to bring up, um, Early Doors, is this movie... Um, we talked about this a little bit off mic, but... The trailers for this movie that came out in kind of late 2009, early 2010. They were so has, good. Yeah, it has one of the most... Uh, I mean, this and The Dark Knight famously had very uh, compelling advertising campaigns. But we should say, so 2008, uh, The Dark Knight comes out. Uh, undisputably Nolan's kind of most culturally penetrative movie. I don't know if it's his most um, financially successful. I could have done that research, but I chose not to. Um but certainly his movie that has resonated the most throughout pop culture, I think it's fair to say. And, and was, you know, a surprise success even relative to the critical and financial success of Batman Begins, right? It just took it to another level. So they knew at this point all they needed to do, this is Warner Bros. and Christopher Nolan, uh, because Nolan actually is very involved with the uh, ad campaigns for his movies, which I think is interesting. Um, he promotes this movie in a very unique way. The initial trailers, i.e. leading up to day of release, basically did not tell you what this movie was about. They showed you who was in it. They showed you, like, Leo DiCaprio, Elliot Page, uh, Tom Hardy, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, uh, all of whom at this point are, like, kind of on the rise or kind of at the height of their powers in some cases. Um, Marion Cotillard, uh, only a few years after winning uh, an Oscar as well, is, is here. Um, you know, it showed you the cast. It played the, frankly, speaker-rattling uh, percussion and brass-heavy soundtrack from Hans Zimmer. The, 
it's just designed to rattle cinema seats as you watch um they played that and they showed some of the key images from the movie so you had like the uh you know the start where the uh, the water kind of rushes into the sort of oriental uh, bar i guess it's supposed to be and kind of crashes around uh, leo dicaprio and it shows the the city streets of paris kind of folding in on itself it has uh, ariadne smashing the mirror and all these kind of quintessential inception images all of which interestingly are from the first like act of the movie <laughs> Um, yeah, they they don't really do a very good job of telling you what the story of this movie is. It's very no. much just like it's just bomb, cool shit, bomb, and then like loved that shit when I saw that in the cinema. It was yeah. fucking excellent. And all anyone knew about this movie was it was like going to be mind bending, right? I remember people at school at school, Mark, discussing what the fuck even is this movie, but people were just hyped because it was a new Nolan film following on from Dark Knight. Because you know, obviously the trailer even says like from the director of the Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan. And you know, and um, back then, like the Dark Knight was the the gold standard of the good shit. Like that yeah. was it was the, the dankest. It was the dankest Kirsch. It was the wettest puss. It was the hardest dick. Um, I did also just quickly look up whilst you were giving your little uh, lecture on Nolan there that mm. the Dark Knight is not his most financially successful movie. Oh, what is? The Dark Knight Rises is his oh, most Oh, well, season. yeah, sorry. That, that By a out. fraction as well. Uh, Dark Knight did 1.6 billion. Damn. And Dark Knight Rises did 1.81 billion. Damn. Yeah, so just inched it out. I think Dark Knight Rises kind of got pipped to the post by Avengers as well. Cause it came out the same summer. So I did, I think, didn't it? I always, yeah. think of those, I always think of Dark Knight Rises being a bit before the Avengers. Yeah. I don't know why. That was that was the year that cinema died and made way for Marvel. <laughs> um, the year that Joss Whedon killed cinema. <laughs> God, imagine a Joss Whedon movie being more successful than a Nolan movie. What a terrible world we live in. But, um... <laughs> I mean, that's a debate <laughs> for another time. <laughs> oh, come on. Joss Whedon is a, is a TV writer who is and sometimes the greatest television show of all time, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But that's for another time. Wait, he didn't write Footballers' Wives. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember that show. I remember how. Sm- well, it doesn't surprise me that you like Footballers' Wives. It's just pure smut. I don't. I don't like it. I've, well, I, I mean, I liked it when it was on. That's all I say about that. Um, as a as a teenage boy in his bedroom, <laughs> yeah, Footballers' yeah, Wives yeah. was the the gold standard. <laughs> Watching it on uh, one point volume on the lounge. Um, <laughs> anyway. Parents knew what you were watching. They always knew. Oh dear. Anyway, um, it was goes to bed at eleven. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Enough about programs that we may or may not have masturbated to. Um, back to Inception. Anyway, yes, the, so the point I was making was this. The trailers are very enigmatic. Like Even the element of like the dream uh, heist and the dreams within a dream, which are now so synonymous with this movie, were not uh, made clear until pretty much the day of release, right? One of the big selling points of this movie was like, what even is it about? Which I think he kind of tries again with uh, Tenet a little bit. Uh, mm. To less less success, I would say. Um, but yeah, so so that's kind of the the context of this movie comes out in. Um, I have the opposite experience to you, really, Mark, of seeing this movie because I saw it uh, on opening day. I'm fairly sure, or at least the Friday of the opening week. 
which in those days I think was still the opening night. I know that now it opens first thing in the morning. Like any blockbuster opens like first thing in the morning on Wednesday. Yeah, for some yeah, reason. yeah. No, it was, it was uh, yeah. This was back when like cinemas were more. Well, you had event cinema outside of Marvel movies. Like. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that. Uh, yeah, and it was a packed cinema. Nobody knew what this movie was about. Nobody knew where it was going to go. And honestly, it was a pretty intense cinema experience. Like, people were on the edge of their seats watching this film. And it's kind of easy to see why, because what this movie, I think, has, and we'll start getting into the plot a little bit, but what I think this movie has in terms of the, uh, like, because uh, we'll touch on the sci-fi, the dream, the subconscious, blah, blah, blah. But viewing this as a heist movie, it follows the mechanics of a heist movie, kind of to the letter and with a certain level of precision, right? Because this movie is essentially, as I alluded to in my opening uh, spiel, a movie about the thief who has to come in and do one last job before he can retire. So that's kind of a a classic trope. Uh, There's a complicated relationship with a woman that gets in the way of his his, his, uh, one last job. Uh, Very much a femme fatale kind of... Yes, and obviously as the movie goes on it kind of becomes a bit of a deconstruction of that trope or we start to see how they're playing with that idea anyway um, which we'll get into. He has to assemble a team of highly specialised specialists it's highly specialised specialists it's a redundant thing to say but you know what I'm saying Uh, all of whom have specific tasks and talents that they bring to the team Uh, we see them carefully lay out the plan the plan immediately goes to shit, and then the rest of the movie is the highly trained, specialized team adapting to the new circumstances until eventually they pull off the job by the skin of their teeth. So, bearing all that in mind, and there's lots of twos and fro's with the heist itself, uh, you know, car chases and action scenes and stuff like that, but also there's a lot of confidence man shit in this movie, right? Like, there's a lot of we have to kind of blag our way into getting the mark onto our team. And all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and of course, we, we do have uh, you know a, a featured Mark, quote unquote, not not you, Mark, but uh, the the Mark who they're targeting with their heist, who is of course Killian uh, Murphy's character, Robert Fisher Jr. All that to say, this movie structurally is a pretty classic heist movie in that regard. If you strip away the sci-fi and the dreams and all the rest of it what you're left with is pretty is a pretty bare bones heist movie wouldn't you agree yeah no i think absolutely it's it, like you say it's got all of the hallmarks of that kind of genre movie and it's also got some other little things peppered on it like it's got the sort of film noir things on there as mm. well uh which it kind of plays around with and and yeah even down to like the characters like i mentioned before like tom hardy's character he's very much feels like he could that that character could be transplanted into any of a number of heist movies and feel completely at home within those movies as well yeah and DiCaprio's character which we'll definitely get to um has all the sort of confidence of say somebody like George Clooney in the Oceans movies especially in the scene where he approaches um Killian Mm. Murphy to and obviously we'll get into this a bit further down the line but there's the scene where he sort of chances it on this gambit that he's like we have to make him aware that we've got him in a dream, we've kidnapped him, and then we can kind of play it off further from there. And that feels very much in keeping with, like, just standard uh, heist Yeah, he has that aspect of he's very, um, yeah, all all of his plays are very ballsy. And, um, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so I think, so that's kind of, like, why I picked it for this theme, I guess. Um, Obviously, the the, the kind of unconventional nature comes from the sci-fi aspects, but also... 
Uh, the fact that Inception itself, the task that they're willing to, that they're trying to achieve here, uh, as we alluded to in the intro, it's not stealing a, an idea, which is what they are normally tasked with doing. Uh, this team, it's implanting an idea into the Mark's subconscious, um, which we're told early on is a is impossible, but Dom reveals uh, he knows it is possible, and we'll get into that. So. Mechanics. So let's let's just kind of breeze through this and kind of because uh, obviously the plot of this is um, famously uh, complex. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, it just it's one of those plots where it just keeps throwing stuff on top of it. Like yeah. you get this very simple setup. It's like okay, these guys they do espionage. They can go into people's dreams. Like cool. Okay, it's like but there's multiple levels to dreams. Okay, that's fine. There's multiple levels. And if you get killed in a dream, it throws you back. It's like right. Okay, and then they just keep throwing more and more shit on top to the point yeah. where and as Aiden knows like I'm incredibly tired doing this episode I've just spent <laughs> three days at a festival I've just gone back to work and so I had to cram this movie in and I watched most of it last night and I had to stop because I was like my brain is struggling to keep up with all of this new information and yeah yeah it's a lot it's a lot to deal with and it it turns on it turns on a dime as well as yeah exactly it just keeps throwing things in and i I don't think it's that any one concept is too hard to follow it's just like the thing that people said about this movie when it was out is like if you went out for a piss in the middle of a screening and came back it would take you a good 10 minutes to catch up with what's going on and i think that's fair yeah i think even though most of the dialogue throughout is very uh expository it's yeah. still like yeah if you went out or like took your attention away from it for a few minutes you would likely be lost as to where they are what's going on because it whose does, mind like, they're in <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah and you know even when you are following what's going on in it it jumps around like different levels and different minds so much that it's quite easy to understand why a lot of people do refer to this movie as a complete like head fuck i personally don't think it is as complex no. and convoluted as people say it is it's actually quite easy to follow for the most part but obviously not everybody's going to have that experience with it yeah i mean yeah. i, I think, didn't struggle yeah. watching it that much but i think this is like i sort of briefly alluded to you off mic that it almost feels kind of antiquated now even though this movie is only just over a decade old because obviously it was so influential like you did point out and yeah. films have really tried to emulate this ever since but I think a lot of films and TV have gone even further down these rabbit holes of having overly complex narratives and yeah. I think that we're just a little bit more accustomed to them now so I didn't find this too head fucky but me being tired was not in any way the way to see this movie yeah yeah I think also there's an element of like this movie has kind of a, and this is again a typical Nolan trait, but like it has kind of a relentlessness to it. Like, uh, not just in terms of the pacing, but like the, the Hans Zimmer score obviously rises to bombast on several occasions, especially in that final act where it is just shit happening whilst brass assaults you. <laughs> just bomb, bomb, bomb. That Hans Zimmer score is what kept me awake as long as it did. Like, every time I could feel myself nodding off, this movie would just sucker punch me with that boom, and I was just like, I'm back, what's going on? Where are we? Whose mind are we in? You know, that's an aspect of this movie... That's Yeah, that's an aspect of this movie that uh, has has been parodied up and down, the the score. But I honestly think it's it's iconic at this point, and like... Yeah, and it works, that's the thing, like, it's It does work. I mean, it's kind of funny, because, yeah, so we should talk about... uh, the opening a little bit because that kind of sets up everything that's going on but like even as the 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 opening logos the warner bros logo the syncope logo come up on screen you're already getting the bomb 
bum, bum, just rising up <laughs> as the titles roll. And then, uh, so yeah, the first scene, we uh, we cut to a beach. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio washes up on a beach as several uh, armed Japanese men uh, surround him. He's then taken to see an aged uh, Japanese man, uh, played by Ken Watanabe, as Saito, we learn later. In fact, we learn immediately, because this movie does not give a fuck about whether you're uh, following it or not. That he meets this old man, clearly there's some, some history between them, and then it immediately cuts to him as a younger man, uh, explaining to Saito about how dream extraction works. And this sequence, I think, quite elegantly sets up the mechanics of this uh, world. Because obviously we have um, uh, Cobb and uh, Arthur, so that's Joseph Gunn-Levitt's character, uh, explaining to Saito the mechanics of um, you know, a, a dream extraction, how, how it works and all this kind of thing. And as the conversation develops, you learn, of course, they're there to rob information from him. Um, and in order to do so, they've created, they've actually created two levels of a dream because they wake up from the, um, this kind of, I guess it's supposed to be like a bar or a lounge or something, this kind of oriented yeah. bar that they're in, that they're kind of in a back room of. Um, and obviously he, he discovers their deception because uh, Mal shows up who uh, is Marion Cotillard's character, a kind of slinky femme fatale, or at least she is in this scene. Um, and it's kind of interesting. I was watching this from the point of view of, obviously I've seen this movie quite a few times. So I'm interested to know, like at this point in the movie, like what do you think is going on? Because we see um, Marion Cotillard, uh, Mal, show up, and Arthur's like, what's she doing here? And Cobb goes, oh, don't, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. And he kind of goes off into the room, ties her to a chair and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and they have this, this back a, and forth going on. You know, I was like confused, but again, because I, I immediately saw the kind of film noir tropes and the heist thing, and I already knew it was a heist movie, obviously. I thought that the whole tying to the chair was part of some elaborate ploy um, right, to right. pull off some kind of huge thing, um, which obviously as events transpire, uh, not exactly the case. Uh, yeah, because then we Mal escapes and shoots Arthur. Yeah, so on. she she turns from femme fatale into like outright villain. Um, yeah, very very. Quickly. And also, yeah, it seems to be the one who tips Saito off that he's dreaming. Yeah, um, which is interesting. Uh, yeah, it's because I think when it's, I well, first it's interesting saw this, when we get further down the line in the plot. Yes, when I first saw this, I kind of assumed there was like a like a Mr. and Mrs. Smith thing going on. Like, mm. they were married at one point, now they're, you know, counter-agents and all this kind of stuff. Obviously, we find out that that's sort of true as the movie goes along, well, but there's a little bit truth. more to it than that. Yeah, there's a little more to it than that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, so this sequence sets up, obviously, uh, if you die in a dream, you wake up in real life, but everything you feel, you still feel. So, you know, she shoots Arthur in the leg, he still feels that pain in reality. Um, with some very clunky dialogue there. I just want to throw that out there right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the kind of thing, though, where it's like, I, I can I can forgive that. I know it's it's the kind of dialogue where, I know what you're thinking of, where uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's like, you know, if you shoot me, I won't die, run a dream, or whatever. And, um, yeah, it's a little bit clunky, but also, like, it yeah. kind of needs to be stated. It does. I think, you know, there could have been a slightly more subtle or nuanced way of doing it, but that's generally one of my complaints about the movie is like and i feel like again due to the complex nature of the narrative i can't be too hard on it but so much of the dialogue is clunky and expository to the point where it's a little bit off-putting for me 
I don't. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. I don't. I personally don't think this movie. Certainly, I think that's a complaint about other Nolan films that I've heard. Um, he certainly likes to have his characters explain the plot to one another, uh, which is sometimes more necessary than uh, others. Yeah, I think it is necessary in this case, but it's mm-hmm. it's always just like in anything I watch ever, regardless of you know my relationship with the director and stuff. Overly clunky expository dialogue is always a massive turn off for me generally. Yeah, I can agree to that. I think this movie gets away with it because I think the emotional core is there. Um, and I think what's kind of interesting about it is the more expository stuff is kind of the more casual dialogue. And the mm. emotional stuff is actually what's being revealed, like being meted out slowly over the course of the movie. Um, but anyway, yeah, so, so to, to kind of cap what we were saying... So this this opening sequence kind of sets up like the dream within a dream because we then have they all get killed and wake up supposedly in Saito's love nest they mention his yeah. like, apartment where he keeps his mistress I guess um, but then he rumbles that it's not really the apartment because he lands on the carpet he hates uh, which he knows is made of polyester but in this it's made of nylon and he reveals they're still dreaming they're in another dream. Um, I and this also hate so- that as a little detail. I just want to throw that out there. <laughs> I think I it's great. This. It's just a, it's just an odd little choice that it's uh, the the material of the rug is what tips him off. <laughs> no, I totally I totally get this. I think I've definitely had relationships with carpets like that where I would immediately know if it was the real one or or not. <laughs> I can't say I've maybe, ever been that deeply involved with a carpet before. But. Maybe, maybe this is a uh, an insight to the unique workings of whatever undiagnosed condition <laughs> me and Saito both share. But um, <laughs> certainly, I, I would notice the difference between an nylon and a polyester carpet if I, if I was face to face with it in that way. Certainly, yeah. If it was so. a matter of life and death, you like. Yeah. If it was a game show, for example, if it was nylon or polyester, you'd be like, you'd win. You'd, t- you'd yeah, take over the if, certainly, if it was one that I was familiar with as well, like, I would definitely be able to cast a different <laughs> material. Um, it's it's a detail that you'd notice. It is. I, I relate to this. I kind of love it as a detail, but I'm also like, where did that come from? Like, why yeah. that choice? <laughs> um, yes. Okay, so yeah, this sequence also introduces the idea of the projections, because uh, this scene has uh, Lucas Haas, a friend of DiCaprio, and uh, also going to be in, featured in episode two, Mars Attacks. Um, stay tuned, baby. Stay tuned, baby, yes. Uh, notoriously a member of Leonardo DiCaprio's uh, Pussy Posse. Uh, oh, yes. We, uh, alongside David Blaine? <laughs> yeah, David Blaine and uh, a few, I, I believe Tobey Maguire. Tobey Maguire. Uh, um, Johnny Depp. There was a, a, a lady involved as well who was like the female pussy posse member, but I can't remember who that the was. The token member, just yeah, so they couldn't yeah. be called sexist, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know what we're talking about with the pussy posse, um, I was going to say Google it, but you might, you might not want to Google that specific <laughs> You phrase. might not find what we're talking about straight away. <laughs> Needless Maybe to page say... page two or three of Google. In the early days of his stardom, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio was in a posse, and the posse hunted for pussy. And it's nice to know that DiCaprio, all these years later, hasn't changed. Yeah, he's still uh, he's still a poonhound. No, he fact. is the fucking poonhound extraordinaire. It's honestly a little bit upsetting. And uh, clearly, he still he still ride or die for the posse because Lucas Haas 
showing up in this movie. <laughs> he needed one of his bros on set for just finding that purse. <laughs> Sniffing it out like bloodhounds, mate. Yeah. Good lord. Well, clearly Saito's a member of the Pussy Posse as well with his fucking... his love nest. Is, is he, well, yeah, okay, he's also, he is a member of the Pussy Posse, but he's also an honorary member of the League of Uncles, if you ask me. I think he deserves a place in that. Okay, interesting, interesting. We'll put mm. a pin in that. Um, so, yes. Call the, And they all get uh, killed by Lucas Haas's projections, because it turns out they're in his subconscious. Uh, yeah, so we kind of get this, and this kind of, it does introduce all the concepts you you need, because... Because uh, the way they introduce the projections in that scene is like there's a riot happening outside that's heading closer and closer to Saito's apartment. Um, and then it kind of spills into the room and gets them all. Uh, which is a kind of a, one of those weird, like... Nolan's very good at these images that are from reality but feel very surreal. Like mm. this idea of just like a swarm of people just barging through your room is quite like a... It's a, it's a striking image, to say the least. I have to say, can... I really do like the whole projection thing, where they introduce this mm. concept that if you're inside somebody's subconscious and they know that you're not well, you, you're not from there, you don't belong there, um, it will turn on you, and therefore the projections, like, say, the rioters, and then they, they bring it back in loads of different ways later on in the movie. I was like, that's a cool idea. And they yeah. definitely mine all they can out of it, and I was very appreciative of that. Yeah, yeah, and it's part of the reason why the nature of Inception itself is so uh, difficult, right? It's like, you have to try and sneak past a person's own subconscious. Yeah, anyway, without them knowing the... it, which, you know, is, again, it's a really fun and interesting way of doing a heist movie. And yeah. this is why I was actually kind of glad that you chose this movie for this, because not only did it give me an excuse to watch it, but um, I mostly had an excuse to watch it. So, yeah, the Saito job goes kaput, we see they all wake up on a uh, bullet train and they're, you know, racing racing through. There's a, a shout-out to the, a guy that we never see again in this movie, but the Asian kid who's just reading manga, who's part of the crew at this point, <laughs> who wakes them all up on the on the train. Oh, yeah, um, he doesn't show up again, does he? <laughs> no, he's just some guy that they hired for this job, I guess. But, um, yeah, so they, they all go their separate ways. And long story short, they're all brought back together because it turns out Lucas Haas ratted them out. Um, but Saito is there anyway and he's like, listen, forget him. We need you to uh, for an Inception job. It can't be done. It can be done. Uh, you get the idea. You heard the opening spiel. <laughs> so basically the concept is, yeah, they want to implant the idea in Killian Murphy's head to break up his father's energy empire before it becomes a monopoly, essentially. I think Saito says that they would, in effect, become a global superpower if a certain deal went through, right? Like, that's the idea. One thing that I think is interesting about this movie is all of the main characters are complete bastards. Because yes. Saito is a shady motherfucker. Like, he's, first of all... You know, he's a super capitalist. Like, he's an energy capitalist himself. So, whether his concerns about um, Fisher Enterprises or whatever becoming a superpower or genuine or not is never really gone into in the movie. Or whether it's just like, actually, we've got a chance to weaken our big rival, you know? Um, that's yeah, not don't entirely dig clear. deep enough into that. Well, they don't dig deep enough into a lot of the characters. This is just something that I want to very briefly bring up and we'll come back to later. Mm is kind of my fundamental problem with this movie. 
is I don't particularly find any of the characters really that compelling. Okay, interesting. That's probably my that was my main thing for me. Was like I was watching it and I was enjoying it, especially like the spectacle and the set pieces and all the the weird dream within dream and sci fi nonsense and all that. I was like, this is all good. But ultimately, I just didn't really care about any of these characters or their motivations. Really, it's like Saito's like, oh yeah, I want to potentially weaken my competitor and become. I was like, cool, okay. Um, okay, well, I, I think I disagree, and maybe this is the benefit of having seen it a few times. So I'm kind of I can see it with the benefit of not having to try and follow the plot as closely, I suppose. Looking maybe because I think it, this is something that crops up in a lot of. Um, a lot of people who don't love Nolan's stuff, let's say, will kind of cite the idea that the characters are um, perhaps a little one-dimensional or um, a little underdeveloped, um, which I think is fairer in some cases than in others. I think what Nolan often tries to do is kind of whittle characters down to their bare essence, and mm. I think it is often very dependent on who he has playing the role so i would cite um i would actually cite cobb in this uh, leo dicaprio's character i think if you didn't have leo in the role i think that character could be very flat because and his this is where you're gonna hate me okay i don't think dicaprio is that good in this i really okay. didn't well that's just a trash him. wrong that's just no, a trash I, honestly wrong i thought his performance was a bit flat and a bit i don't know like there were certain no, points where I was like, DiCaprio, mate, you're genuinely quite good. And I don't know, he really didn't do it for me in this one. I actually thought he was just, yeah, I actually kind of found him a bit flat. So Especially in some Wait, of the more emotional okay. scenes as well. I was like, mate, I know you can do this stuff. And here, you're just... See, I think, I think you've got... Uh, okay, I, I won't say you've got the wrong uh, opinion, because it's your opinion. But I think what I would say about Cobb, and this is, again, the benefit, I, I've seen it a few times, I, I, you know, whatever... I think the whole point of his character is that he's kind of dead inside. And I think that's what, um, that is what Leo is homing in on. Normally he is more of a ham. I will say that, uh, especially as he gets older. <laughs> Whereas I think with this movie, it's all about his inner turmoil. And I think he has that as aspect. I think he does pull off that aspect of like, when things start going wrong and he starts flipping out at Arthur, you do see that like side of him that's like, oh, this guy is barely keeping his shit together, and like, I think that's an aspect of this movie that is perhaps easy to overlook. I think, and this is a movie about confidence men. I think everyone in this movie, to some degree, is playing a role, and you know, you don't, um, you don't always get the full extent of what they're actually like as people. So I would cite Arthur for that as well, like. To me, he seems like a guy who's, like, trying to project this image of, like, oh, I'm the guy who sorts things out, I know what I'm doing, all this kind of stuff. And yet, as the heist begins, we've realised that Arthur doesn't have all the information, he fucks up quite frequently, in fact. Um, Eames, I think, is interesting, Tom Hardy's character as well, where he's kind of... He kind of projects this image of being in it for the for the ride, but then you're also a bit like... Well, he's pretty ride or die by the end, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. He, like he actually has a level of commitment that we haven't seen prior to that. He, yeah, he and I think he's invested, he becomes invested in Fisher as well, which, as we yeah. kind of explained, what his role is, we'll get into that. Um, he does also get, get the best moment of the movie, just throwing that mm. out there as well. Which yeah, is yeah. where he put, I think you know the bit I'm talking about. Where right. he, he pulls out the fucking grenade launcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Best part um, of the entire movie. 
Yeah, so, okay, I think what we'll do is we'll we'll start going through characters now and we'll kind of get through the plot as we deal with the characters, if that makes sense. And hopefully people have seen this movie and they'll know what we're talking about. Because this is kind of it's kind of a hard movie to explain to someone who hasn't seen it, right? Exactly, and it's fine if you're struggling to follow what we're talking about because it's Inception, and that's kind of the point. So yeah. So we're we'll doing start with spin on this. Yeah. Okay. We'll say that. Um, <laughs> let's start with um, Dominic Cobb himself. Big Cobby. Big Cobby Cobb Cobb. Um, um, so we've already said you you don't you don't find this character particularly uh, compelling. No, not really. And I mean, as you go through the film and you find out more about him, I was like, okay, it's a little bit more interesting. But I don't know, just something about this character, I really just didn't care that much. Um, okay. I didn't really care about his struggle. I was just more like, give me this cool heist shit. Mm. That's what I'm more here for. See, see, this is where I think I disagree. Like, I fundamentally think Cobb's story is what powers this movie entirely. Like, Oh, it's absolutely yeah, there's... the backbone. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But no, but I, I would even say, like, the, even all the, the spectacle and all the rest of it, like, to me, I don't think it matters if you don't care about Cobb. Like, I mean, I was, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not sitting here and being like, Dominic Cobb is the greatest cinema character to ever no. be conceived. No. No, because I'd think, slap the taste out of your mouth if you said that. But. but fundamentally, I think, okay, so what we've got to understand about Cobb, right? So he's a, a dream thief, essentially. Um, we find out that he started off as an architect. Um, I think it's kind of implied he started off as an actual architect and then moved into this kind of virtual dream architecture thing. Yeah, I think they do which... mention it because obviously Michael Caine shows up for his obligatory yeah. contractual exposition scene yes. in the Nolan movie. He does. Um, and uh, yeah, we find out that he was Cobb's mentor, but is also Mal's uh, father. Which is uh, yeah, a bit of a conflict of interest there. Yeah, that's a dynamic, actually. If we were talking about character dynamics, that's one I would have liked to see more of. So I think the scene they have together is interesting because Kane's very good at playing that kind of, that mixed feeling because, as we find out, this is the guy who essentially killed his daughter. Yeah. Inadvertently, and he knows that. And also there's that element of, like, Cobb is clearly someone he cares about like this is his protege and his you know he's the father of his grandchildren like this is someone he, he cares about on, on that level there's yeah. also an interesting moment there's also an interesting touch where well this is the cob section so we won't hang hang on this too much but there's also an an interesting element where the grandmother is at home in the usa with the kids michael kane's teaching in paris and we know the grandmother doesn't approve of carb right like that's something that they they make fairly clear. So I was that's an, uh, this whole family setup. I'm a bit like I want to know more about this. Yeah, I'm with Obviously, you on that. And I think but the movie be... doesn't have time to to get into it. But like no, but I think it's just also because you know Nolan can only get Michael Caine out of the freezer for so long before he starts to pour <laughs> out too much. So. Yeah, yeah, fair. Um, no, so, I, yeah, I agree so... with you. There's definitely more going on with that dynamic that I would like to know about. It's just yeah, the movie mm. doesn't. It's not the focus of the movie, but I feel like a little no. bit more stuff around that would have probably helped me. Because obviously, find the Cobb more compelling, I guess. The emotional core of the movie is Cobb wants to get back to his kids. That's why he's doing the one last job. Uh, he's been effectively in exile for a number of years, it seems, uh, because as we find out, uh, on one of their sort of jobs, he and Mal got lost in limbo. Which, if you're wondering what limbo is, listeners. 
All I need to tell you is it's unconstructed dream space. That's a phrase that the movie just throws out there and expects you to deal with. Um, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, it's, it's the just, it's it's endless dreams basically. Yeah, it's just kind of the the level of fuckery that you get to if, if you get lost in the dream. Basically, is the idea. Um, they were down there for ages and ages and ages. But as we know, time passes differently. I believe it's like fifty years in one night is what they they say. Yes, they yes, spent fifty years yeah. together in one night. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they had a whole life down there. They grew old together, effectively. Uh, but she lost her way, couldn't tell the difference between reality and dreams anymore. So Cobb incepted her to believe that... Obviously, he put the idea in her head that the world around her was the dream world and that she needed to die in order to wake up. Unfortunately for him, when they did wake up in the real world, she still had that thought in, lodged in her mind and constantly was trying to commit suicide, which is, you know, it puts a strain on a marriage. This movie um, is a 12A. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and, yeah, she had herself declared sane by a bunch of psychiatrists so that Cobb would be forced to commit suicide with her, but he still didn't. Um, but basically, the net, the net result of that is everyone thinks he murdered her. And I just want to say that when I got to that part of the movie, I was just like, when did this become fucking Gone Girl? Like, when did that yeah, happen? Right. Like, I was like, very confused by the sort of tonal whiplash that came along with being like, oh, he wants to be reunited with his wife, and clearly he feels guilty, that's why she's so violent. It's like, yeah, he kind of drove her to kill herself. I kind of get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get why this vision of his wife might get a little bit stab-happy. It makes sense. Yeah, yeah. She's very stab-happy. Um, very stab-happy. She comes at them at several points. And this is why, of course, Cobb needs to hire a, a new architect in the form of uh, Ariadne, played by Elliot Page. Um, and I think their dynamic is another thing that I do think is uh, I latch onto about this movie, where I, I like the aspect that she's kind of the only one on the team who's, like, seeing him for what he really is. I think all the guys are kind of, you know, they're, they're kind of palling around. They're the professionals. They're the... That they know what they're doing, but Ariadne is the outsider, and she kind of sees Carver's like, "This guy's fucking dangerous." Like, we're going into this job with him; he is a fucking liability. Like, his his ex-wife, his dead wife, is going to keep coming back, keep trying to kill us. And he even says, "Like, you can't tell me the the layouts of the dream levels that you construct because if I know them, then Marvel will know them too." And that's that's no good for anyone. <laughs> you know? I, get, I will I will throw this movie points for taking an Oscar winner and casting them initially in the the role of a femme fatale and then just going fuck it they're a slasher villain now. Uh, yes, I'll, I'll admire the balls on Nolan for that one. <laughs> Your friend has the gay condition. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, the Ariadne is that the character's name? Yeah, Elliot Page's... Uh, yeah, Ariadne, uh, yeah. interesting name, uh, which I believe is lifted well, from, from mythology, Greek mythology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I like something Ariadne. To do, something to do with the Minotaur and the Labyrinth. And yeah, stuff, yeah, which is, or... again, it's a bit on the nose, but... Um, uh, I like Ariadne. Okay, think... this is this is something... I'm going to stop you there. This is something I do want to throw out as a general defence of Nolan. People always take the piss out of his slightly on-the-nose names. Listen, this is not a fucking 
drama, a kitchen sink drama about a, a family going through a divorce, all right? This is a movie where the dream thieves go into the brain. It's okay if the names are a little bit silly. I will say it again, like I've said it numerous times, Nolan is the thinking man's Michael Bay, okay? So I can let that yes. shit go. And the thing about that is that's hilarious is his fans would fight you on that, but the man himself would probably be like... Yes, no, that that's about right. No, it's so true, isn't it? Like a lot of his super fans get really like in depth on like his stuff, and I'm like, I don't even think he thinks it's that deep. Like, I really don't. Yeah, I mean, I think he he he's always focused on entertainment first and foremost, right? Like, that's yeah, the absolutely. Thing. And I I feel like this movie in particular, because I've always thought this about Nolan. Like, Nolan just clearly really wants to direct Bond. Yes, this movie is very Bond. Yes, particularly when they get to the third dream level and there's like the snow base and everything. Literally, that's exactly what Which I was thinking. Which is like 100% uh, uh, just lifted from On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah, when you've got like our, like the projected guards on skis having shootouts and stuff, I was just like, okay, yeah, I know what we're doing here. And also there's that scene, the, the scene at the start with the initial Saito job where you do get a few shots of DiCaprio running through shadows yeah. and shooting people with a silenced pistol and stuff. That's like... To- totally Bond. Um, hot take though, I kind of never want Nolan to actually movies. do a Bond movie. And he's kind of said as much as well. He's kind of said as much like when whenever he's and he's always asked about would you, would you do Bond. Um, his kind of diplomatic answer is always something to the effect of, uh, I would love to do it, but I don't think the franchise really needs me, which I think is kind of code for like. I like Bond. I feel like I you could already really stitch a Bond movie together one, out of all these know? different films, to be honest. Like you could probably throw something together. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he cribs from he cribs from Bond imagery a lot, certainly. And it's certainly an influence oh, yeah, on sure, his uh, sure. Batman movies, without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. But yeah, so Inception. We should uh kind of I mean, we don't really need to sum up much more of the plot, I don't think. Like, you, you get the idea. They they, they kind of... Um, so, the, the various characters that you hire is obviously we have Ariadne, who's the architect. And I think oh, what's great. interesting... Yeah. I think Elliot Page is great in this movie, as uh, he always is. Um, and I think he plays that push and pull between, like... You see his... Uh, sorry, you see his character. She's a her. Is um, play... You know, she's very, like... Um, She's intrigued by the possibilities of all this stuff, all this dream space. And, like, like you have the sequence where she bends the street in on itself and she's messing around with the mirrors and stuff. And you see that she's very, she's, you know, she's found something that she's very intrigued by and very good at and very, like, what, you know, excited to be a part of. But also, she's the only one who really gets how yeah. fucked they are throughout the movie. Because she's looking at this guy, Cobb, like, Jesus yeah. Christ, you are she a also hot doubles mess. as kind of the audience <laughs> surrogate. Um, because she is the one who asks all the questions. She is the yes, one who yeah. is often told what's going on. And like you say, she's the one that sees Cobb for what he really is. And she is inevitably the only character that actually discovers that anyway. Like, nobody else seems to, seems to know his whole deal. So She goes into his uh, mental elevator. She does. And sees and his they, past. And they do some really <laughs> so nice a, little visual so, cues with that. Yeah, that's a great sequence. Because you see, uh, I love when you see him descending below the level of the, the train. That's always really weird. It's like kind of, again, it's that thing of like using real objects like an elevator and just like a train track. It seems like a very simple image. But it generates this kind of bizarre surreality of like 
how can a like an elevator shaft go past an outdoor train track you know as that kind of like because this is something i did want to talk about is a lot of people criticize this movie for its lack of surrealism or there's a like, lot of surrealism in this movie yeah i think what they mean is it's not a psychedelic dream movie yeah. it's kind of it's playing more with like very uh practical kind of stuff like like they have the um i forget what it's called but the paradoxical staircase yeah, yeah, it just yeah. constantly loops round. It's impossible and stuff like that. Like, well, first of all, it wouldn't make sense if this was a psychedelic movie because the whole point is they're trying to make Fisher think this is reality. Yeah, so, so why would you the, go it needs to be completely yeah. the opposite direction? Yeah, and the, to me, the most surreal image in this movie is uh, towards the end when um, Cobb's explaining everything, and uh, it's where him and Mal are in the dream world and they're going to off themselves. And it's, uh, they lay their heads down on a train track for a train to run their heads over, which, of all yes. the ways that you could top yourself, that was crazy. fucking out there. Uh, yeah, but the yeah. way it's shot as well, it's all kind of done slightly like Dutch angles and stuff, and it's just a really peculiar and, ultimately, very dreamlike sequence. And I think yeah. I'll... This is where I'm going to get into praising the movie, because I'll, as a sort of blanket term, didn't really care for many of the characters. The emotional core of the movie didn't really do much for me, personally. But I thought, like presentation wise audio wise um direction was was good like as a i thought the way that this movie actually portrayed dreams was quite fascinating and kind mm. of reminded me a lot of and obviously this is a comparison that i would make but i did read that nolan originally envisioned this as a horror movie yes and so i feel like he has a good grasp on dreams and obviously a nightmare on elm street immediately springs to mind but also yeah, whereas yeah. those movies kind of go in a much more fantastical direction i think I kind of feel like that's maybe what Nolan was aiming for. He's like, what if not, what if something like Elm Street was much more grounded? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and I think, you know, it kind of has to be grounded in that way because obviously one of the key emotional conflicts for Cobb is that he's losing his grip on reality, right? Like, yeah. he can no longer tell the difference between the real world and the dream world, um, which obviously is where we get the kind of iconic image of this movie from him spinning the spinning top. Because yep. they all have a different totem that can, and this is actually this is actually a concept that's taken from lucid dreaming. I don't know how possible it actually is, but you know, people talk about this idea of like lucid dreaming in real life. They they do come up with this idea of like uh, you're supposed to have this visual totem that yeah. that you have that can indicate whether you're in a dream or in reality. So that is actually a well, <laughs> a quote unquote, real life concept. Yeah, do you know how um, I know about that? It's going to be American Dad, isn't it? It's American Dad. Yes. <laughs> the Red um, Bull. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that, um, that is where I'm mostly familiar with that concept from. I know that's a real thing, and I, I like the whole totem thing. Um, then again, the, the whole spinning top thing is a really nice, very iconic yeah. image now. Um, There's also a very subtle bit of script writing where, because um, when Ariadne first goes into the dream and freaks out from being killed by the projections, uh, so, so well, first of all, uh, there's a really nice bit in that scene where, because obviously he meets Ariadne in Paris, which is where Michael Caine is, and it cuts to, so they have the first scene between them where he says, uh, you know, you've got uh, a, a minute to design a maze that takes five minutes to solve or something, whatever it is, and she eventually is able to stump him with that circular maze thing, um, which is what makes him feel like, yeah, oh, she, she is as good as Michael Caine says. Um and then it kind of cuts to them outside a, a a cafe, and they're talking about the nature of dreaming and all the rest of it. Yes, and uh, I do this like is this is one of my favorite bits of editing, where um, it, you know, when it cuts to that scene, and then uh, Leo DiCaprio has the moment where he goes, 
uh, when when you're in a dream, you never really remember the start of the dream. Stuff's just happening. And he turns to her and goes, how did we get here? And she goes, oh, well, we came from the... Hmm. It's, so, it's a really nicely done bit because it also kind of it indicates how the rest of the movie is going to use its visual language. Because obviously there's the, the slight meta thing where obviously in a movie you, you also cut from one scene to the next. You don't show a character, unless it's Birdemic, you don't show a character leaving the house, getting into the car, driving <laughs> there, getting out, ordering coffee, sitting down. You don't generally do these things. No, you just no, cut no, from no, one thing to the next. There's no point. You know, the audience is able to fill in blanks mm. themselves. And I do, as much as I think this scene is great, and you've, you've talked to me about this scene before, and I, seeing it in context of the movie, did think it was actually a, quite a stroke of genius, to be honest, and really enjoyed it. And I thought it was really well well paced and well, really well played by Elliot Page as well. Uh, really, really dug this. I do think I've done a little bit of reading online. There's a lot of people that are clinging on to this scene a little bit too much. Yes, um, I, I don't really want to. Than what's actually there? I think it's more just Nolan having a little wink at the. Yeah, it's just a nice, clever little thing. I don't buy. Actually, we should say one of the big fan theories of this movie is, oh, it's all a metaphor for filmmaking. Cobb's the director. Ariadne's the writer. Arthur's the producer. Eames is the actor. All this kind of, oh, Saito's the studio. Like, okay, maybe there's a bit of that, but I don't think that's really what the movie's about because it just doesn't thematically jibe with anything else. Like, I'm sure if you are a filmmaker, like, you know, a lifelong filmmaker like Christopher Nolan, I'm sure there's an element of, like, you're, you're kind of writing what you know, right? You're writing character archetypes that you know. So, yeah, there's going to be the guy who's in charge. There's going to be the... The creative one, I I think there's there's certainly some fun to be devised from that idea. Again, yeah. it's one of these fan it's one of these fan theories that like does it really add anything to the movie? I, no, I personally you can don't understand think so. where it's come from because looking yeah. at the the core cast of characters, you could definitely ascribe those archetypes to them. Yeah, and I get that, but ultimately, also a simple question that kind of derails this whole theory: What is Mal then? Yeah, is she like representative of his his lost like a film that he wanted to make? Uh, yeah, like what does yeah. what is she supposed to represent? Did he kill um, an actress? Do, is that what this is? I will. Did Nolan I will. Sh- <laughs> 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 I will shout out um, the Blank Check podcast who attempted to answer this by saying that um, in the same way that Nolan is obsessed with all his characters having a dead wife or love interest, Mal represents the one trope that the director simply cannot let go. And the writer, Ariadne, is just constantly saying, why do we need this in this movie? No dead wife. <laughs> okay, actually, do you know what? I've changed my mind. I'm now sold on this theory. <laughs> so I, I will shout them out for that. Um, that said, I personally don't think that theory holds a lot of water. No, um, I Again, doing a little bit of looking online, I haven't delved too deep into this, but there's a lot of stuff written about this movie, about, like, you know, there's those sort of theories and, like, the way it uh, portrays dreams. And I'm just like, wow, people put more thought into this movie than what Christopher Nolan did. <laughs> I think that people put thought into the wrong aspects of these movies sometimes. But, um, yeah, anyway, this is, you know, a bunch of, bunch of shady bastards go into dreams to try and influence a person for yeah. the gains of super capitalists. Like... I don't think there's that much depth to it, really. I mean, I, I do think there's more depth than that. Like, I think on this watch, I was kind of looking for for theme, knowing we were talking about it on the pod. And I think ultimately, if there's a theme to this movie beyond man going to dream, I think... I mean, first, obviously, there's all the themes of, like, subconscious and reality and all the rest of it. But I think, ultimately, what this movie's driving at and what it's really about, 
the ultimate theme of Inception is regret. I, yeah. I would say, mm. um, and like like many Nolan movies, Nolan is absolutely obsessed with the passage of time. Right, this is something that comes in his up in his movies all the time. Non-linear time flows, different temporalities. He's obsessed with this stuff, and I think the way that manifests in this movie, obviously, you have this aspect of time passes differently on each level of the dream, and that's like an integral part of the the process of the plot. But essentially, this movie is about the life-defining mistake that Cobb made in performing Inception on his own wife that completely fucked him over and how he ultimately lets go of his... Uh, not necessarily his, his guilt, but he kind of learns to live with it, I guess. Um, which is why we have that last scene, the famous last scene of him using the spinning top to see if he... Like, he's finally reunited with his kids. He spins the spinning top and just walks away from it. And we, the audience, also never get to see whether it lands or stays perpetually spinning. Um, and to Nolan's credit, he does invoke death of the author on this. He says that as a family man and father himself, he likes to believe that the top lands. But he also is like, we didn't show it for a reason, you know? Yeah, and honestly, not showing it is the best way of going about it. Yeah. This movie, I don't think it would be as well looked back on if there was a definite answer. The the, the yeah, and I think it's a perfect. Is, it's, it's, also it's a just perfect a, metaphor for him yeah. leaving the regret behind, leaving the guilt behind. Yeah, exactly. He he's able to forward. not look at that spinning top. He's able to actually yeah. just be a, be sure of what he's doing, and which is something he's you know he's not really doing mm. throughout most of the movie. You know, and it's kind of paralleled with the guys because um, we should say one of the uh, crew members that we've. Learn is the guy who makes the sedatives for them, the Indian fella, mm-hmm. who, by the way, fantastic performance. That guy, I forget the actor's name, but um, he's great in this. He's in Drag Me to Hell as well, weirdly, but um, and nothing else. But um, what else uh, do you need to be in? <laughs> You've been in yeah, Drag I guess hell. so. I guess so. Um, but yeah, like when they meet him in uh, Mombasa, and that's another Bond element of this movie is all the globe charting, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but when when they meet him in uh, Mombasa, he's like got these guys all hooked up to these heavy duty sedatives, and they have that exchange about like, well, they they they're not going to sleep; they're waking up because their dreams are their reality now. And who are you to tell them what's yeah any different, right? And that's kind of an element of the movie that's kind of ticking along i don't think it's as obsessed with the nature of reality as like the matrix is i think it's more talking about like the way people kind of delude themselves or they become fixated on certain aspects and i think that's reflected in um in killian murphy's character uh, fisher jr as well because obviously his defining conflict in this movie is like the neglect that he suffered at the hands of his father that Ironically, the guys, our, our, our core team of shady bastards, kind of make it all okay for him. It's, the, it's what this movie's kind of saying, right? Yeah, they, they do the ultimate kind of turncoat in that sense, don't they? <laughs> well, they kind of, they kind of, as shady as they are, they do leave him with the lasting impression that his dead father loved him, even though he didn't, right? <laughs> like, well, yeah, like, I mean, they didn't have to do that, but they did. You know, they, yes. they had they had a job to do, but they they made someone's life a little bit better. And, and I do love that Eames, the forger slash actor. So we should say uh, Tom Hardy's character, 
his whole thing is he can t- he can bend dream reality so that he can appear as other people, right? And he embodies their voices and their vocal mannerisms. So we see him playing um, Fisher's uh, uncle, um, who was kind. Although this is a fucked up element, that Fisher's uncle was at least on the surface kind to Fisher in reality. But they then turned him against the uncle in favour of the father. Which, to be fair, uh, Ariadne does point out at one point, what, you're going to ruin this guy's one good relationship? <laughs> Which <laughs> I think is kind of funny. Um, I do think the way Fish is used in this movie is really interesting. Because he also becomes kind of an emotional crux of the film in a way that I don't think like the Mark character usually is. You know, They're normally either, like in Ocean's Eleven, they're kind of an antagonist, right? It's the yeah, Andy like you want to see the, the people get one. Yeah, he's, a, he's yeah. a piece of shit, and you want to see the, the con men take him down. Or he's just kind of like a, a bumbling comedy character, right, in a more comedic movie. Whereas in this movie, because he becomes part of the crew, because we should say um, there's a wrinkle where uh, his projections have, have been trained, uh, and this was something that Arthur didn't, it didn't come up in his research um so they are now like well we don't have the resources to fight a private army so we're going to go for the gambit that we mentioned earlier the quote-unquote mr charles gambit where uh, dicaprio pretends to be a sentient projection and is like hey remember when you put me in your subconscious to protect you you're dreaming by the way and luckily for them fisher goes along with this and then becomes part of the crew um move Bold move. Ballsy move. And I do think that's one of the scenes which has some great DiCaprio acting, to be fair. Like, he does... I, I like when you see him slip into the the confidence man uh, character. Just, Especially yeah. because it, you've yeah, already seen... Fun. You've already seen Cobb kind of like, this guy's a fucking mess. You know, like, there is an t- inherent tension to any time that he's trying to bullshit people because, like, on the inside, he is just so fucked. Like... Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, so basically, yeah, Fisher becomes a member of the group, and then uh, obviously in the final level, they have the scene where he reconciles with the late great Pete Postlethwaite, uh, playing his father. Um, although obviously it's not really him. It's uh, I do also like that Eames is is invested in the Fisher storyline by this point, because <laughs> obviously he's the one who's kind of done all the research on what the relationships are and what they're like as people. I love that at the end when it looks like they're not going to make it into the safe to talk to the projection of the father. He goes, uh, "Oh, that's a real shame. I was really looking forward to seeing what was in there." That's <laughs> like character. That's character in the movie. Yeah, he does steal every scene he's in, and uh, they are fully aware of that as well. You know, they give him all the best lines and all the best. They do, uh, they do, and they get. Yeah. Another thing, like Tom Hardy is always very charming to watch when you can, you know, understand what he's saying and see his face. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he would have been better if his face was completely hidden in this movie. I see, general, no, I think this is why Nolan does it, right? I think this movie came out and everyone was like, "Tom Hardy's so good in this," and Nolan was like, "How dare he distract from what I'm trying <laughs> to do here? How dare he?" <laughs> <laughs> so from this point on he just hit him away <laughs> I don't think Nolan's that petty he seems fairly know. he seems fairly chill for the most part <laughs> he's fairly chill apart from around Tom Hardy he's, he won't forgive yeah, him yeah he's like he's like fuck you can't wear a bag <laughs> Tom I haven't seen you for so long here put this on <laughs> <laughs> fuck you Hardy <laughs> Tom's like what we're doing on this film he's like well you're going to be in a cockpit and you're not going to talk to anybody else. <laughs> yeah, that is wild. And, and fucking uh, um, 
Dunkirk where he's like just a face leering through goggles. <laughs> Doesn't That's get any crazy. scenes of anybody else apart from talking over a radio. It's great. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Although he does, uh, although I think that when I mean, this is not the Dunkirk podcast, and we should wrap this up soon because we're running quite long on Inception. But I, I will say, I think the thing that makes that a bit of movie magic in uh, Dunkirk is obviously he's in the the cockpit the entire time, and you don't really see his face, and you just hear him like throughout the movie it's when he crashes the plane at the end and he has to shoot up the flare to be arrested by the germans and that's when you finally get a full face shot of tom hardy as he's like grimly going to become a pow that's the movie magic right there and i think that's the that's classic nolan fuckery where it's just like yeah, we're gonna we're gonna wrap him up in all this fucking stupid audio equipment and masks and shit because I know at the end I'm gonna hit you with some Tom Hardy with old old blue eyes, baby. Does Tom Hardy have blue eyes? I can't remember, but he's. Uh... I honestly, man, like I I didn't have it happen when I saw Dunkirk at the cinema, but I just like to imagine that like there was definitely people who went at the end when he takes off, people went, "Oh my god, Tom Hardy's in this!" <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Michael Caine is also a voice on an intercom in that movie. Of course um, he is, because like Christopher Nolan can't make a movie without Michael Caine in there. It's it's, just, it's one of those laws. Well, that... supposedly Tenet was Caine's last uh, film, right? Like, or one of his last, because he's retired now. That's a shame. Semi-retired, I think. But um, well, that's why his character's called Sir Michael in that movie, right? Because then there's the bit where uh, John David Washington's like, "Goodbye, Sir Michael," which is. Um, you know, a cheeky little guy from Nolan there. Um, he's a cheeky little scam through nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I have to admit, since starting this podcast, I've definitely... My opinion on Nolan has changed. Just uh, on him, his movie. You're starting to see him as a cheeky little scamp like I do. Yeah, I don't see him as like a Chad like you do. I don't think he's in any no. way a Chad. I think he's just more of a... He's just a, a, a cheeky little schoolboy that's been given lots of money to make films. I think that's what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I will also say just fucking ruined a building one of my favorite nolan quotes ever because he is a quite a softly spoken uh, guy in, in real life uh, which is partially what makes him so charming to me i think because he makes these crazy action movies but he's a very reserved earl gray drinking uh, suit wearing dad <laughs> in real life um but uh, yeah, there's a, there's a great interview with him where he's talking about uh, like Dunkirk, and the interviewer kind of says like, I don't think the kind of different, uh, you know, the temporalities that the movie takes place in might be a bit confusing for, for viewers. Like they might find it hard to follow. And Nolan just looks at him, looks at the ground, looks at the audience, and just goes, Yeah, I'll fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is just that's the ultimate response you want from a director. Absolutely. <laughs> Fuck them. If they can't follow it, fuck them. <laughs> uh, right, yeah, so... I, I admire that energy. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I fucking mean... hell. That could have been the tagline for Tenet, right? <laughs> if they can't follow it, fuck them. <laughs> Who gives a fuck? You're going to watch this anyway. Cinema's, <laughs> cinema's been closed for ages. Are you fucking serious? I'm Christopher Nolan. <laughs> You're going to watch this. <laughs> I'm Christopher Nolan, and I saved cinema. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just really briefly do the character ranking. So... Dom Cobb, I'm going to have to give him a solid 8, I think. I know you're going to go lower. Yeah, I'm like a, a 5 or a 6. I really just I just did not find him that compelling. I don't know what it was about DiCaprio's performance in this. I don't think he... 
I don't think he went hard enough in certain areas for me to really kind of get this broken man angle. Or maybe it's a bit more subtle than what I would want it to be. Um, but no, I mean it's it's all right, and he, get, he gets one or two really good scenes. Uh, Ariadne. Oh, I mean Elliot Page is always good, and yeah, uh, I like this character. I like the fact that yeah, as you say, this is the only character that sees through Cobb's bullshit, and it's nice to have a character who is an audience surrogate, but is not like annoyingly so. Yeah, um, and is an active participant in the plot. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's not like it's not like her entire role in the story is just go. Hang on a minute, what's this mean? It's so. Like, Every yeah. time she asks a question, it's very much within context of what's happening and is it necessary information that not only the audience would need to know, but herself and other characters would need to know as well. Yeah, yeah, So exactly. it's done exactly. well, I would say. Hmm. Yeah, I, I'm going to give her like a 9, maybe a soft yeah. 10. I'm, I'm on you cool. I'm on you with that, yeah, 9 or 10. Very good. On you like a fly on shit. Um, who have we got? Arthur, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. This JGO. There's not too much going on with this character outside of the fact that he's like really kind of capable and he does get mm. all the best action scenes as well. Like that hallway yes. fight is like Yeah, the hallways, yes, the the non-gravity hallway fight, yes. Which is really um, well done and I'm curious as to how they did it. I'm actually going to look it up because it's I can tell you. It's a rotating hallway. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense actually. Again, that's going back to yeah. Old, that's like old film trickery, isn't it? I mean, that's how they did the. Yeah. Uh, it's it's mostly there's a little bit of CGI. It's mostly a rotating hallway and wire work, though. Yeah, I mean, you can tell it's a very well choreographed scene by the way it plays mm. out. Um, but no, yeah, I think here uh, again, I'd like maybe a little bit more of this character because he's very much just kind of playing the sidekick. Yeah, um, yeah, he exists very much in in uh, Cobb's shadow. Do you know what it kind of reminds me of in a weird way? It kind of reminds me of Big Trouble in Little China. Because yes. in that movie, Kurt Russell's character is supposed to be the hero, much like how Cobb is supposed to be the hero of this story. But it's actually yeah. ultimately a psychic who's the capable one who's actually doing most of the stuff that kind of gets them where they need to be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, he feels that, yeah. He, I can see why people put him in the producer role, because he's the one who sorts stuff out, you know. He gets yeah. things done. Um, but, I mean, there's... I think, there's, I think there's, some, there's some interesting nuances to his character. I'll say that, like... I do think this is one of my more preferred JGL performances. In some movies, I'd find him a bit much. In this one, uh, I, I can't exactly put my finger on what turns me off about JGL in some movies, but I feel like he's a little bit try-hard in some films. And in this one, I feel like that kind of works, because he's like the slightly uptight sidekick. Because he's always the one as well who's like, he's the voice of reason, right? Like He's always <laughs> been like, we shouldn't do this, this is a bad idea. Are you sure you're up to this? You know, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I like this. There's a few nuances I like. Like, I like his um, his conflict with Tom Hardy's Eames, where they have this kind of back and forth where they clearly respect each other's abilities, but, you know, uh, Eames refers to Arthur as a stick in the mud, right? And obviously Arthur th- finds Eames to be kind of a bit annoying, a bit of himself and what have Very you. Very aloof as well, yeah. Yeah. But I also, um, yeah, and I like that he... I do like that he has his smooth moments, like where he smooches Ariadne at one point. Um, yeah. Which is, just, I, I love that that's not made any more of, like, that's not a love interest thing either. It's just like, eh, worth a shot. <laughs> and, um, well, they're all in the heist where they all may die, so you might as well, I yeah. guess. And this is a Nolan movie as well, so when, you know, all, all characters in Nolan movies are like, business first, <laughs> pleasure <laughs> later. Um, uh, yeah, so there's that. I, I, I also like the way he delivers the line, um, 
when Eames says to him uh, about the hotel level, he's like, oh, the security's going to be on you. They, and he goes, uh, then I shall lead them on a merry dance. I always like the delivery of that line. Uh, I like that he has those slight moments of like, listen, I know what I'm fucking doing. Like that slight confidence thing. Yeah, it's like a, um, he has a little bit of levity about him, which is nice. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I think, yeah, I, I can... Yeah, I'd give him like maybe a strong seven, light eight. I think is where I. Yeah, okay. He just gets all the best action scenes, and yeah, that goes yeah. a long way for me. So, oh, and we should say as well, um, all of these characters are immaculately dressed in this movie. Oh yeah, um, there's some ridiculous drip on all of these motherfuckers, right? <laughs> I mean, it's that thing of like, you know, Nolan movies are about incredibly well dressed men explaining quantum mechanics to each other. So, yeah, we should say the costume designer was a guy called Jeffrey Kerland who I believe Nolan works with um, after this as well. Uh, but yeah, the suits in this movie are fucking incredible. All of these characters look great. You know, they're all dressed, they're all suited and booted, of course, but uh, they all look great. And I like that they've all got enough of a distinct style, you know, like Eames has his like large colours, kind of open a few buttons down. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Ar- whereas Arthur's very buttoned up, waistcoat and tie. Um, yeah, and obviously Saito uh, is very like, slick business suit and everything yeah so they find a lot of variation doesn't give the characters a lot of uh stuff in terms of dialogue and such to kind of personify them they do a good job of doing that visually and through action Mm. which is always good um but i do think that going back to arthur as well like there's not enough additional stuff on top of him for me to like yeah i think if there's one character that i would like more of it's probably arthur because we've kind of shouted out some of the nuances of his character but like I like the implication that he's been working with Dom for a long time. Um, and they kind of know each other's foibles a little bit. Um, but yeah, because there's one line that I like. I mean, I like that this isn't overly explained. And I like the way it's delivered. Uh, this the bit where Ariadne, uh, you know, kind of says about him. Oh, his, uh, his ex-wife was down there. And um, Arthur goes, oh, not his ex. She died. And she asks, what was, he, what was she like when he was, she was alive? And he just goes, oh, she was lovely. I like that a lot. I like the implications of that. I like that he clearly had a relationship with Dom and Mal at one point. Maybe could have done with a little dash more explanation of that. Because then there's the kind of implication of, like, oh, is he hanging around with this guy who he knows is past it, is a mess, because he feels some debt to Mal and some debt to both of his friends in that regard. It would be nice to have a little bit more than that. What we have is good, but it would be nice to have a little bit more. Yeah, some is good, more would be better. That's how I feel about mm. it. And it's just how I feel Let's... about a lot of the characters in this movie. I think because of the sort of the complexity of the plot and the sort of very breakneck pacing of it, you do sacrifice some of the, the just the little character touches that could make them yeah. a bit more compelling for me personally. But I mean, I don't dislike any of the characters in this movie. So, I can say that much. Wait, so let's quickly breeze through the rest then. Um, so we've got Eames, Mr. Eames, Tom Hardy's character. Great, best character. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to give him probably a ten out of ten. I think it's a great combination of performance and like you know an intriguing character who's well written, brings a bit of levity to the proceedings. But again, I like the nuance of like he takes his craft very seriously. Like he's he breaks into well I say breaks into he implicates himself into Fisher's office so that he can study the uncle character and get the mannerisms right and even though he has the benefit of being able to physically transform into these people on the dream level, he takes that thing of establishing the nuances very seriously. Like you get a brief shot of him 
mirroring the guy's movements like he takes off with the glasses and gesticulates with them like he takes all that very very seriously uh, which I, I know is kind of an interesting sort of meta reflection of Tom Hardy as method actor you know there's there's some kind of interesting correlations there I suppose but um, yeah I, I, I agree I think Eames is a great character um, he's that he's that classic heist movie archetype of well as well as the guy who's like super skilled but down on his look <laughs> and that's yep. you know and always, always, a, always a like winning the eccentric one who seems a yeah. bit of a live wire and he very much he fits that really really well and Tom Hardy just plays it perfectly as well. Mm. What about uh, Ken Watanabe as Mr. Saito? I mean, I love me some Watanabe and I think he's particularly good in this one. Mm. Um, yeah, I love Watanabe too. Actually, I think he's one of the best actors. He, you know, he and he plays super capitalist very well. I think, but then he also just gets to show a bit more of a, like emotional. He's got a bit of a he's he's got a bit of a heart of gold, you know. Considering this character's introduced as a shady ultra capitalist who you know has mistresses and shit. As the movie goes along, he does start to bond with the team. Um. Also, we, we in this uh, podcast, we like to shout out people who are built fucking different, yeah? Um, Saito gets shot five minutes into the heist, and this motherfucker is still going strong. Oh, like, yeah. And like the last level... In the last level, the snow level, where he's like... Fucking Tom Hardy puts a gun and a grenade in his hand, and he's like, hold off the baddies while I fuck around. <laughs> and he's just like, no room for tourists on this trip, baby. <laughs> you know, Saito is... Built different, and we love to see it. Mate, he's MVP. Um, that's what he is. Yes, I also like the bit where they are discussing that um, the length, like obviously the length of time it would take to pull off the job. The only way they can get Fisher in on it is uh, the seven-hour flight from LA to Sydney. Uh, I love that they're like discussing. Well, we'll need to buy out the people who work on the plane, the hostesses, the pilot, and everything. And Saito just goes, "I bought the airline. <laughs> it seemed neater." <laughs> Yeah, um, I like that. <laughs> that's very. I thought that moment was very reminiscent of um, Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne as well. There was yeah. a there's a t- touch of that. Yeah, but I also like that there is some emotionality to this character. Like we do get to see him get lost in limbo, and he becomes the decrepit old man, and um, he kind of forms the mechanics of um, Cobb's, re- Cobb's redemption because you see him essentially have to go through what he went through with Mal, where he's like, "This isn't real." you need to come out of the delusion. Um, also, he really, is, uh, in typical Nolan's subtle fashion, hits the theme of regret hard in that opening scene that's then replayed at the end where he says about him, you know, you don't want to be an old man waiting to uh, filled with regret, waiting to die alone. Um, and, that, yeah, so I think, you know, he Saito, um, he's kind of a, very much a supporting character, but he is also, he he kind of puts the plot in place and then he also plays he into the ultimate themes. Again, yeah. yeah, yeah. I like that he's a man of his word as well. You know, he uh, as soon as he wakes up realizing that the Inception went off without a hitch, he's immediately on the phone to get uh, Cobb's criminal record wiped. Um, I like that. Shout out to Saito. Yeah, ten out of ten. Um, like him a lot. Ten out of ten. We love Watanabe. I hope we do more Watanabe movies soon. Um, shout out to the way he says. Uh, Kojira. Oh yeah, uh, nobody says it better than him. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, the way he says yeah. that is it makes me shum. Anyway, who have we got left? Is that everyone? Uh, Fisher, Fisher Junior, Killian Murphy, The Mark. Always like Killian and stuff. 
really like him a lot. Yeah, um, I mean, he's a fucking Nolan boy, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Nolan knows the exact kind of roles to give him as well. And this is a good, uh, a good showcase for him. Yeah, um, I like that he's. You do sympathize with him because of the nature of his estranged relationship with his father, but he's also clearly a little rich boy shitbag. Um, one of my personal favorite lines deliveries is when he's uh, uh, when they take him hostage in the dream level where he's in the taxi. And he goes, uh, look, there's $500 in the wallet. The wallet's worth more than that. You might as well take me to my destination. (laughs) (laughs) I I like that. (laughs) He's just an impetuous little shit. But again, you you do... Again, he is kind of... Maybe you could have more of this character, I don't know. But, like, I I like what's there. I like that when he gets swept up in the adventure, he's all in. Again, Fisher is just fucking built different, man. Um... (laughs) Again, he gets fucking shanked up as well, and he's still going. But, um, yeah, so I, I like that. I like his scenes with Pete Postlethwaite um, playing the father. Uh, obviously, Postlethwaite's kind of a cameo in this movie. He's just lying in a sick bed. Um, not so fun fact, Postlethwaite died of cancer for real uh, not long after this movie came out. Oh, I wasn't um, aware of that. Yeah, in my uh, light research, it seems that uh, he was aware of that whilst he was making this movie, and um, I, I think I mean I, I I've not had this super confirmed, but I've read it from a few sources. Uh, supposedly, the scene where they are in the in Fisher's mind vault at the end, and uh, they're reconciling. Um, supposedly, Postlethwaite had told Murphy that he was aware that he was short; he didn't have long left. So supposedly, uh, Murphy's emotions in that scene are quite real actually oh really um yeah so that's just a little sad note to end this uh discussion of inception on um big shout out to pete postlethwaite though great actor uh absolutely wonderful british character actor we love to see it we love to see it so i suppose now's the time to answer the we've done all the characters right there's nobody else that we really need oh mal we've not talked about mal yeah um I guess we kind of have. She's crazy. She's French. What more do you want? Yeah, ten out of ten. Uh, you about Yusuf as well. Oh, Yusuf, of course. Yeah. So this is the uh, the drug manufacturer, um, who both provides them with the ability to have the multiple levels of dreams with the sedative, but he um, he also reveals to them at one point that the problem with that is if you get shot in a dream whilst you're still under this heavy sedation, you go straight to limbo, baby. Yeah. Uh, I like um, him again. So, like he plays a good role in a lot of the big sort of action scenes of the movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause he's the one driving the truck in the first level of the dream. Yeah. Which um, is one of this movie's greatest tricks is that after they've established all the mechanics, all they need to do is constantly cut back to that truck. Just slow motion falling into the water yeah. to just raise the tension a little bit more. I also think he gets one of the best gags in the movie where he, like, yes. where he's, you know, all the shit's going wrong and he's obviously driving the car and then he turns and is like, do you guys see that? And obviously they're all asleep. <laughs> yeah. I also like that when they go, because the first level is his subconscious, when they go in it's raining and uh, they mentioned that this is because he maybe overindulged on champagne on the flight. Which <laughs> really away. <laughs> has to be one of the most cerebral setups for a piss joke that's ever been executed in cinema. Um, yeah, so on, on the subject of Mal, though, as well, uh, we did give her... Uh, sorry, Yusuf, 10 out of 10. Why not? We love him. Um, I think on the subject of Mal, 
I think Marion Cotillard does a really good job performance-wise in this movie, given that she doesn't have heaps to do. Obviously, she has a lot of key scenes, but I think she turns on that dime of like being manic and sinister, but also you do get the glimpses of what she was really like in real life. Um, I also do think that I, I really do like the writing of the scene where she's like, stay in limbo with me, Carb, at the end, and he's like... You know, he finally comes to terms with like, you're not my wife, you're a projection because you couldn't, you couldn't even hope to mirror her perfection, her imperfection, blah blah blah. That that line I think is really good, regardless of what you think of the rest of uh, DiCaprio's performance. I think that monologue is very well delivered. No, I mean, I can't, I can't completely disagree with you. So, so the big question: we're running very long on Inception. So it's good that we've got a nice uh, 90 minute to follow it up with, eh? Um, <laughs> in the form of uh, Jackie Brown. But the key moment, Mark, is this warm or is it Nam? By which I mean, is it Kino or is it Inferno? I think it's a soft warm for me. Um, mm. Like, a, just a little one. Like, not not the kind of one that makes you, like, shit yourself in the cinema. The kind of one that, like, you just had a coffee yeah, in the not- morning. It's that kind of warm. Um, <laughs> not one of Hans Zimmer's most powerful bombs. Which, <laughs> no, by the way, I don't know if we've been the night before, kind of thing. I don't know if we've shouted this out enough. But Hans Zimmer's soundtrack in this movie is fucking great, right? Oh, it's fantastic! It really is. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it's a soft bomb for me. Like, I I liked this movie. There's a lot about it that just didn't quite land for me personally, but I enjoyed watching it. I don't know if I'd be in a rush to watch it again anytime soon, but I think I mm. would be interested in seeing it again. Okay, um, I'm gonna go out and say. Oh, sorry, go on. I was just about to go soft bomb. That was was all I was going to say. (laughs) I think I'm going to give it a strong, powerful bomb. Um, One of Hans Zimmer's. This is one where he really slams the bomb button. Um, Yeah, I like this movie a lot. With his elbow. (laughs) Yeah, I I like this movie a lot. I think it's my favorite Nolan movie potentially. Um, It's not a movie I watch super regularly, but it's one that I'll probably put on maybe once a year. Um, I will say. I think if you didn't see it early days in the cinema, some of the magic might be lost on you. Yeah, um, I watched it on my TV in my front room. Yeah. With a, you know, yeah. after three days at Download Festival. So maybe I will it say, didn't yeah, quite have the same effect. I don't think that's the, the option. And like, if it's ever replaying in the cinema, I would urge you to go and see it in those conditions. Oh, yeah, it would absolutely be better. Um, like, I would see this movie in IMAX 100%. Like, it's visually yeah. gorgeous, this film. I think it does take me back every time I watch it to seeing it um, in 2010 in a packed screening. No one knew what this movie was about. Every, every scene was like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, what's going to happen next? And that final act, because the, the kind of, yeah, you know, people criticise this movie for being too expositional, but like, the magic trick of this movie is the first act is setting up that second half, right? Where it, it's all bloody go all the time. And People in the cinema were, were were genuinely getting so into it, into the suspense and everything. Um, and like you know, pe- people always say to me like, "But you can't, you can't just say like the cinema experience is what made the film good or whatever." And like that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, I think when you see it in those circumstances, you see that it objectively does work to some extent. Yeah. Even if you're even if you're not engaged with the movie on a certain level you can feel that energy of people being super into it. And what I will say is like that final scene where the spinning top starts to wobble, starts to wobble, and then it cuts to black with no definitive answer. The entire room went, 
oh. <laughs> and you know that's not something you get every every cinema trip you know where people are that invested no. no, I mean, I there's an audible response at the end, you know. It's, it's been a while since I've experienced something like that in a cinema. Um, I think the best time I, may have, I think I mentioned this on the show before. Uh, best time I ever had in the cinema was when I saw Drag Me to Hell in the cinema. Yeah, that's a good cinema movie. I just saw it in a packed screening in my hometown, and everybody in that room was just into it. Uh, yeah, like yeah. to an almost obnoxious degree. Like, if you weren't into it in that room, you'd it'd be the worst cinema experience of your life. But like, I'm talking about every time yeah. there was a vomit gag, everybody audibly went, "Ah, oh, no!" Like just it was just great. It was like a fucking pantomime. It was yeah. the best cinema experience. And I do think that's part of the experience sometimes. And like, yeah, absolutely. You know, there's there's some movies that play better in cinemas than on on tv and that's that's fine you know i I think that's a criticism you can level at certain movies but i also think you know movies are supposed to be seen in the cinema and like if you're talking about christopher nolan you know that's one of his big things right it's like these movies need to be seen on a big screen as communal experience yeah yeah 100 percent. and i think inception really taps into that i think it really taps into that like i think it's precision engineered to be a great cinema movie whether that translates to being a great streaming movie or a great yeah. movie to watch after after a long weekend of downloading, uh, I, I can't. I can't. Yeah, say, I but, mean, uh, yeah, I'm not gonna. I, yeah, I don't dislike this movie. I just think it didn't quite work for me. However, I can imagine seeing it in the cinema must have been magical, and I mean, especially when you have no yeah. like cultural conception of what the movie is. Right? Yeah, because I will say this is the thing. Like, I had gone more than ten years without seeing this movie, and so I'd heard from many, many people that this was, you know, the best thing since Tommy Rubs. So I kind of had an expectation in my head that this was going to be this really big mind fucky movie and it, it kind of isn't it's actually a bit more low-key than what i actually thought it was gonna yeah. be it's um, a fairly straight ahead narrative yeah. yeah and so i guess maybe my expectations being subverted was you know played a part in what i thought about it but i would probably watch it again not anytime soon though because it's long that's the other thing it's quite yeah, long yeah yeah it's a little on the long side and do you know what else um, is, quite is probably long? Uh, my dick okay do you know what other two things are long <laughs> <laughs> my my dick and my balls. Okay, do you want know three things along? I'm gonna be doing this all fucking night. <laughs> my dick, my balls, and my taint. <laughs> it's Jackie Brown. Now you gotta listen to this, man, because this concerns you, alright? You have the chance to walk over with a half million dollars. What do a stewardess, a gunrunner, a bail bondsman, an ex-con, a federal agent, and a beach bunny have in common? You don't come in on this thing with me. You got to be prepared to go all the way. They're all chasing a half million in cash. Wouldn't even be missed. Half a million dollars will always be missed. The third and least talked about film in Quentin Tarantino's back catalogue, Jackie Brown is an uncharacteristically restrained crime caper that tells the story of the titular Jackie Brown, a lowly air hostess that transports money across countries for Ordell Robbie, a notorious arms dealer. After being caught red-handed with Ordell's money, Jackie ends up working alongside two FBI agents, as well as her bail bondsman Max Sherry to bring Ordell down. Only Jackie has other ideas in mind when she realises she can have her cake and eat it too. (laughs) So, yeah, that's uh, the summary of Jackie Brown there, Mark. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, what made you choose this? Um, well, 
when we sort of batted around the idea of heist movies, I'm not entirely sure why, but this was one of the first films that popped into my head. Probably because the actual heist scene in the movie is one that I really, really like. Um, but also because, and like I said in the intro, people don't really talk about this one that much, especially considering, like, you know, how you know how big Tarantino is and how like you know movie buffs really really seem to love him even in those sort of circles I don't really hear people talk about Jackie Brown that much which is a shame because I really like this film um and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to revisit it because I haven't seen it for quite some time um well in terms of Tarantino though it is sandwiched between Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill which were much uh more commercially and critically successful absolutely and my my spicy take because you know how much we love some spicy takes. I've always been of the belief that Kill Bill Volume 1 is Tarantino's best piece of work. Okay, interesting. Although, um, I, would, I think I do somewhat consider Volume 1 and Volume 2 to be the same film, but I think Volume 1 is the best thing he's ever made. I, I don't consider them the same film. Do you know why? Why? Because they're separate films. Volume 1 Volume 2. And if Quentin Tarantino... If I met him in the street... I would tell him this. That's the first thing you. That's it's what you're doing. It's the it's the first thing I'd say, mate. I'd say, listen, Quentin. I know you like to pretend like Kill Bill's one film, and then you always say like, you know, the sixth film by Quentin Tarantino, the seventh film for the ones after. Let me tell you something. That that that's not one film, mate. That's two films. <laughs> volume one and volume two. Two different films. Okay. Okay, Quentin. Okay. Okay. Get that foot out of your mouth. To you. <laughs> um, um, no, but I think it's interesting, yeah, you went for this movie, because um, this movie is definitely, uh, it's a film that I feel that like a lot of uh, filthy casuals haven't really seen, but it seems to be a kind of, because um, I actually know a lot of people, when you talk about Tarantino, haven't even heard of this movie, Yeah, they love the rest of it. Genuinely, and it's really quite odd, isn't it? Especially because, like you say, it does come sandwiched between... Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill. So you'd assume yeah. anybody that is into Tarantino would likely have seen it. I mean, I think more people have probably yeah. seen fucking Death Proof than they've seen this. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, which is but this um, this movie's kind of got a bit of um, got a bit of a rep these days as kind of being the film bro movie of choice in Tarantino's back catalogue. Right, like this is the movie that people who call themselves cinephiles and um, masturbate with celluloid like to tell you is uh, Tarantino's best film and I do think uh, there is definitely well, a case to be made for that being true because I think this is definitely amongst his best work for reasons that are kind of contrary to a lot of the stuff as to why I like stuff like Pulp Fiction and all of his other work Yeah, I mean my, my take having watched this uh, again last night for the first time in a while I've seen it a few times but um my my kind of like initial thoughts and we'll get into more detail in a minute is like this is a film that I, I, I kind of respect more than I love, I think. Like it's not it's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. I always like it more than I think I'm going to, if that makes yeah. sense. Um and there's a lot about it that I really, really do like. I will say it is very much for my money the Tarantino film for people who don't like Tarantino. Yes, because let's face it if you boil down all the elements of what makes a Tarantino movie, Jackie Brown doesn't really have many of them present. It's got, like, you know, the... the I won't even say eclectic soundtrack, because obviously that's one of the things that he tends to do with his movies, has a very eclectic soundtrack. This has a very focused soundtrack. It's all very much within the same sort of genre. 
which is obviously yeah. appropriate to the film and the characters that it's portraying. And it doesn't have the violence of his other movies. This is a surprisingly bloodless movie for the most part. Well, it it, it does, but it doesn't have the gratuitous gore, I guess. Yeah, the and... There's still very much violence, and it is still fairly shocking, I think. Um, I think because the rest of the movie is, is so low-key and so grounded, I think whenever violence does happen, it's just more impactful. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, I, I mean, we'll get into this, but I think there's some of the more uh, shocking death scenes in Tarantino's filmography are in this movie. Like, it's just they're not lingered on in the same way, and they're not kind of... You know, there's no moment like in Pulp Fiction where they're blowing the back of the guy's head off and it splatters all over the, the windscreen. Yeah, true. It's portrayed is it's portrayed very much more for the realism and the shock of it and the kind of I think it's because the murders um, in this movie are quite cold as well. That's the thing. Like Yeah, that's the thing. It's the mean spirited nature of it. Yeah, because the first death in the yeah. movie is when Ordell, played by Samuel L. Jackson, uh, who I think gives a fantastic performance in this film. Um Yes. Not my favourite Samuel L. Jackson performance in a Tarantino movie, because that belongs to Django Unchained. Because he is next level in that film. I mean, they're a combination that always goes down smooth. Yeah, he... You know? they, they, they know how to bring out the best in each other. Like, there's something about Tarantino and Jackson that just, there's two great tastes that taste great together. Yeah, I think um, Samuel L. understands how to deliver Tarantino's dialogue as well. I think that's what it is. Like, he, yeah. he has a complete understanding of the mechanics. I mean, I think he's great in this film. Yeah. I, I would actually go so far as to say this is, if, if nothing else about this movie, this is like one of Samuel L. Jackson's best performances in cinema. Like, he's so good in this. As uh, the antagonist, I guess, the. Uh, yeah, he's the antagonist. He's kind of the, the movie, yeah. he's the worst piece of shit in this movie, but everyone's kind of quite dodgy. Um, well, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. Maybe he's uh, maybe he's vying for the worst piece of shit with Robert De Niro. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if I'd say that Robert De Niro is like vying to be the biggest piece of shit. He's just kind of like a schlubby piece of shit. Like he's just kind of there. Yeah. He's like he's like that last turd clinging to the bum cheeks. Is you know he's just sort of a hanger on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he is also, I think, um, I mean, we'll get into this as we get more into the plot, I suppose, but, like, my take on the De Niro character this time watching it is, like, this is almost, and it's very typical of Tarantino to cast older actors, right, and kind of, or actors associated with certain roles and kind of recontextualize them a bit, like, obviously, John Travolta's the famous example. Yeah. Um, But I think he's kind of doing something like that with De Niro here, where, like, De Niro's definitely playing on his more typical psychopath gangster roles and subverting the expectations of that in a way that I think is really interesting. Like, cause he's played a lot of, um, or like if you think of, uh, you know, him in Cape Fear where he is playing this almost primal force of nature, complete psychopath is completely in control of the situation. This character that he plays here, uh, Lewis is no less of a psychopath, <laughs> but he is, as you say, he's a schlubby loser. He just doesn't really see... He seems to be kind of an idiot, really. And he's also perpetually um, stoned throughout this movie. <laughs> he's always blazed. <laughs> but I think there's that... And I think it's that reveal of the... Again, without meaning to jump too far ahead, but, like, when he does just murder uh, Bridget Fonda later on, uh, it is that it is quite shocking. It is that well, it is quite, like, a jarring moment for that character. Yeah. Where you do realise the depth to which he sinks you know yeah and i i love that scene where he does 
kill Bridget Fonda, but what makes it even better is the reaction of Samuel L. <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. just kind of fine with it. <laughs> well, is he? That's well, something I want yeah, to get into. I know. It's this, his initial this is reaction. an element that I... This is an element of the movie that I think is is interestingly ambiguous. It's like because he he does murder Lewis shortly afterwards, and there is a question of like, is that out of practicality? Because now he's he's you know an accessory to murder in one way or another, or is it is it slightly in revenge? Is it not? I think there's what you, there's a yeah you could read it both ways, and I think both ways are completely applicable. Yeah. I mean, I do think the line where he goes, uh, you shot her? And he goes, yeah. And, you know, she's being really annoying. And he just goes, well, you could have just smacked her in the mouth. It's <laughs> um, pretty funny. Um, so, we should uh, we should backtrack. We should. Because this is something, I, I want you to explain the plot of this movie real quick. And then we can get into the specifics. Yeah, of course. So, yeah, the plot of this movie is you have uh, Jackie Brown, who's played by Pam Grier, who is fantastic in this film. And she, yeah, we should say yeah, icon of black exploitation cinema. Yes, uh, and it's definitely worth pointing that out as well because there's a weird, almost misconception about this movie that it's completely aping black exploitation cinema, and it really isn't. Mm. It's it's got like some flavorings of that, but other than having Pam, Gr- it's play. It's certainly playing in that ballpark. I would yeah, say. but I don't think it's trying to be a black exploitation movie in any way. I think the casting of Pam Grier and the sort of funk and soul soundtrack choices definitely give it that mm. that sort of peppering and that flavor. But I don't think the movie is in any way trying to be a black exploitation movie. Um, yeah. Which is just it's just one of those things that always kind of gets lobbied at. It. Well, it's an interesting one because. Tarantino, because um, we should say this is an adaptation of uh, an Elmore Leonard novel. Yes, Rum Punch. Uh, by the yeah, Rum Punch, and we should say that the Jackie Brown character in the novel is Jackie Burke yeah. and is white. So Tarantino made the choice to obviously Jackie Brown, possibly alluding to Foxy Brown, yeah, one of Pam Grier's uh, famous roles. Um, I should also say that. Uh, for what it's worth, given that we live in a time where characters' gender and race being flipped is always controversial if there's source material involved. Uh, I should say, for what it's worth, and to his credit, uh, Elmore Leonard is on record as saying that he didn't give a shiny shit either way, and he liked that Tarantino um, put his own stamp on it. He actually called the screenplay one of the best he'd ever he'd ever read in, in his time as a novelist, so... For what it's worth, Elmore Leonard seems pretty sound. Um, I like that he he wasn't bothered by that. Um, so yeah, I, I think I can see what you're saying about like it certainly doesn't. This movie doesn't play out like a typical black exploitation thriller. It's definitely delving into those aesthetics. Yeah, it's more of an. And it literally has uh, it literally has uh, you know across 110th Street as the theme of this movie. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, with, with that great opening shot of. Jackie Brown walk well mm. uh, on a, an escalator at the airport that she works at, and it, there's just this nice tracking shot of her not moving in. Well, she's stationary, but she's moving in the frame. It's just it's really nice. Um, so yeah, basically, uh, Jackie uh, she transports money for Samuel Jackson's character or Dell, um, and you find out essentially that she works for this shitty low rent airline because it's not the first time she's been involved in this kind of thing. So she's managed to get another job in the airline industry and she's still uh, ferrying mm. money back and forth 
So she then gets caught in possession of his money uh, with agents uh, Ray Nicolette and Mark Dargus. I've got their names here. Yes. Uh, uh, with uh, Agent Ray Nicolette being played by Michael Keaton. Uh, Mark Darkus is yes, played by Michael Bowen. One of his most cocaine energy performances. <laughs> yeah, Michael Keaton has is, is, is got weird energy in this film. <laughs> I mean, it's Michael Keaton, what are you going to do? It's weird energy. That's, that's like, very true. Um, yes. Uh, it's also just as a little tidbit. So, uh, Ray Nicolette is a recurring character in the works of Armand Leonard. Oh, uh, he also that. appears in a novel uh, by the name of Out of Sight, which was filmed by uh, Steven Soderbergh under the same title. And Michael Keaton reprised the role in that movie. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah just a little, little tidbit. I've never seen it, but this showed up in my uh, brief research for this movie. Excellent. Um, so, um, when Jackie gets caught with the money, she also gets caught with a bag of cocaine on her as well, which turns out is actually for uh, Ordell's... I, I want to say lover, but you never really get his, the... Look, let's, let's be real, Mark. This is it's, it's his bitch. Yeah. It's one of his yeah, bitches. Yeah, Melody, who like, is... I know we're both too white to get away with phrasing it that way, but... Yeah. <laughs> let's be real. Yeah, like, real talk. <laughs> She's his bitch. Um... Yeah, so who's, there's Melanie, who's played by Bridget Fonda, who is this perpetually stoned beach bunny who o- Ordell just seems to hate and constantly threatens to backhand. <laughs> <laughs> like, if she doesn't go to answer that phone, he's, you know, smashing her chops in. Um, he does, uh, yes, they have a contentious relationship, to say the least. Yeah, um, and so Jackie gets caught with all that shit, and then she basically is in a position where she can bargain with these agents for not only her own freedom, but also to bring down Ordell as well. And so then you've also got the fact that Ordell has brought his friend... What's his name? This is De Niro's character. Gara, that's his name. Uh, Lewis Lewis Gara. Gara, Uh, He's also come around at this point as well. He's just got out of prison. He's sort of hanging out with Ordell. And him... Yeah, I think they say... They say he did, like, 20 years for armed robbery something or something? like that, yeah. And he, him and yeah. Melanie strike up this bizarre relationship. Yeah, yeah. Which Ordell seems to know about, right? Like, he kind of... Yeah. He kind of sets it up. Yeah, they just get stoned together, and then out of nowhere, Melanie's have, like, want to fuck, and then they have... <laughs> there's a really great little gag of, says, three minutes later, and it's just this really unflattering yeah. angle of De Niro just bent over Bridget Fonda. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, essentially oh, yeah, what happens in the plot from there is um, Jackie kind of gets involved with her bail bondsman uh, Mr. Max Cherry and eventually they essentially yeah played play by the late great Robert Forster yes that's, uh, he, who is brilliant in this movie as well he really is mm. um, they essentially yeah one, de- one detail that I love about Max uh, sorry to interrupt okay. is that uh, all the criminals around him are complete morons <laughs> like when we get into the the heist scene um i, I love that they contrast how he, the fact that he is cool as a fucking cucumber compared to like lewis and fucking um what's bridget fonda's character called uh what's bridget fonda's oh, character melanie. called in this no yeah so like lewis and melanie are just stoned and just fucking making a mess of everything whereas like max just strolls in strolls out has no problem dealing with the uh, the various people he has to deal with along the way. It's just a cool customer. <laughs> I just I think that's a, that's an interesting detail that they they kind of show that like, yeah, he doesn't give a fuck. Like, 
Yeah. It's worth uh, pointing out as well that the reason why Jackie gets caught with the money and the cocaine is because uh, a character whose name is Livingston, who's played by Chris Tucker in one of his first film roles, uh, I believe. Uh, Beaumont Livingston. Beaumont Livingston, yeah. that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's his name. What a, what a name. Um, yeah, he gets, uh, basically, Ordell bails him out um, and then just fucking murders him just to make sure that he's not turning yeah. an informant for the cops, but obviously too late for that. But I do really love the scene where Odell kills him because it's where he's, he basically says, I bailed you out of prison, you're going to help me. So he's like, I want you to hide in this mm. trunk and we're going to go to this deal. You're going to jump out and you're going to threaten him with a gun. And Chris Tucker's doing his usual high-pitched shrieking. <laughs> Talking yeah. about how he doesn't want to get in no dirty-ass <laughs> trunk. He's, he's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's on about, I want to shoot anybody. He's like, I don't need to shoot anyone. Just scare these motherfuckers. Surprise them. <laughs> and I think Samuel yeah. and Chris Tucker are both great in that bit as well. Like yeah, They yeah, bounce they off are, each yeah. other. Really I well. also... It's Chris Tucker's delivery of like, I'm a home man, I'm high. Is that well, who got you home? And of course, <laughs> yeah, and it's this long, protracted thing where he gets into the boot and then obviously he just drives him around the corner, opens up the boot and just shoots him. Just kind of, yeah, it's, just, it's just so cold as well. Like it's, uh, and it's, it happens quite early doors in the, in the film as well, so it kind of sets up yeah. Ordell as being like a real piece of shit, basically. Well, that's an interesting thing. We don't really get to Jackie for a while. Like, we see her in the opening sequence, just boarding the, getting ready to board the plane, but then we don't really see her again for a little while. Like we do have a long stretch of introducing Ordell and just setting up his kind of low rent operation that he's running, and the the whole situation with Beaumont. And this is something that I kind of want to pick up on this movie. Um, it's a bit of a dragger, this movie. Yes, like I do have to agree. It with takes you. its time. It takes its time getting fucking anywhere. And I'll be real with you, sometimes... Uh, Jackie Brown is a movie that I enjoy more depending on what time of day I watch it. Yes. If I watch it in, on a lazy afternoon, uh, it's great. Watching it last night uh, after I got in from work and already watched Inception, I was kind of like, oh, baby, this movie needs to speed up. Like, <laughs> no, I completely understand what you there. I watched this for the sake of the show whilst I was uh, getting stuff ready to go to download. So I was like hanging out washing and... You know, mm. make, making a list of things that I need to take with me. So it was a, a nice, easy breezy watch for me. Uh, but I do have to admit, like as much as I do really like this film, um, it is a bit long, and you could cut some of the stuff out in the early parts of the movie. Where, like, there's that whole bit where uh, Lewis and Ordell are watching that like gun promotion tape with just all yeah, the books yeah. and women all, shooting all guns. Say. And like as fun as that yeah. scene is, and it's very pure Tarantino, like the whole dialogue between them and stuff, you could probably cut that. <laughs> See, I don't know if I'd cut that, but there's a lot of exposition in this movie. Like, you want to talk about a fucking movie with a lot of exposition. There are so many scenes, especially in the second act of this, where it's just Pam Greer explaining to various different people, like what this relatively simple heist is going to be. <laughs> and to some extent you need that because it's setting up the various factions that she's playing off against each other. Yeah. But I think there's... I think it's slightly inelegant in its delivery. Yeah, there's, it's and a bit waffly kind of, after You end up with kind of... Because you end up with a scene where... Um, jumping ahead slightly, where after Jackie gets busted and then gets bailed, uh, Ordell shows up at her house... And it's a great scene, you know, where he keeps like he keeps dimming the lights, yeah, yeah. and then she keeps turning them back on, and they have this like power play between them. Um, Pam Greer delivers the N word in the way that only she can. Um, Very, yeah. I, I, I cannot imitate it no, we, but, um, we, for obvious reasons. No, no, I mean, we might be able to drop it in now. 
Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun pressed up against my dick. <laughs> well, you thought right. Now take your hands from around my throat, nigga. Should we have dropped that in, Mark? Probably not. They said it in the movie, so <laughs> fuck it. Um, the, uh, yeah, so there is that. Um, uh, yeah, and like that scene is where she sets up, like, well, I'm going to play the uh, the ATF for chumps and we can get the money past them if you just agree to let me pretend to be in this thing. We then have a scene in a bar a couple of scenes later where she basically just explains the same thing to him. And like, I feel like this is a problem with this movie. Is like, by the time we actually get to the sting, I've kind of forgotten what the whole point of the sting is, because we've talked it. In a way, we've talked about it too much. Like we've, there's a lot of telling, not showing. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And, um, I do have to admit, like, I do think it's a, yeah. a fault of this movie is it's too long. Um, and I know yeah, I yeah. complain about most movies that are over two hours long, just like yourself. Um, and yeah. I do think that is a definite problem with this movie. But the stuff in this film that works for me is like in some of the longer scenes. I think a lot of the just the general dialogue between characters is quite nice and quite fun. I mean, that's just trademark Tarantino. Yeah. He always has fun discussions in his movies. Yeah, I will say all the stuff I like in this movie is the character dynamics and the interactions. I think the the expositional stuff is where it starts to sag for me. Yeah, there's a it gets. I think any down any scene that's just the characters kind of bullshitting each other and talking around each other and all that kind of stuff that's all really fun and as you say that's typical uh, Tarantino um, but yeah I think there's yeah and like kind of the exploration of the relationship between Jackie and, uh, and Max Cherry is like that, that all of that stuff is like the core of the movie yeah I really um, like the whole discussion about how she hasn't made the jump over to CDs yet and she still has vinyl and, yeah. and he asks he says oh well how you can't get new stuff on vinyl and she's like well I don't want new stuff you know it's just yeah, little yeah. little touches like that that I really like in this movie and I think the dialogue is very really good in this film as well um, yeah and they have that discussion as well of like, um, get, about getting older and stuff and uh, all that stuff's great and I, I would argue some of this stuff is Tarantino's best character writing because this is kind of the last movie at least um, arguably until um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I suppose like this is the last movie he does which is really about characters and in that sense I mean characters who feel like real people yeah not like cartoon um, characters and you know yeah and that's not and to stuff. the detriment of his other movies at all like, you know he's trying for heightened realism and cartoony characters in the other movies right like that's kind of the point yeah this and I, I will I will say um sorry I'm on a ramp that's bit, okay <laughs> I just want to finish this point but um I will say as well like, I think it's something he starts to do in later movies in contrast to this is he'll kind of have one character who's a human being set against this deranged cartoony world. So if you think about like Inglorious Bastards, like Shoshana is very much a human being and everyone else around her is kind of insane, right? Or it's kind of like they're these larger than life characters at any rate. Like you have the American GIs and you have like uh, Michael Fassbender playing Bond basically and then you have obviously Landers this kind of crazy character who no one can get a bead on and all that kind of stuff and then i think that like translates over to django and change as well where like you almost have this thing where django starts from a very human place and becomes this mythical character yeah especially at the end yeah he becomes yeah. like a yeah he becomes it's just as cartoonish as everybody else around him yeah um yeah um yeah whereas i think this movie is very it's very low-key 
Um, it's very more. It's, it's much more in line with like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs than his later stuff. Yeah, so I think yeah, this movie is very much in line with um, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction more so than the later stuff, especially considering that his next film is Kill Bill, which is you know the most overblown thing he's ever done. <laughs> yeah, which is not to say there's no emotional core to that movie but it is very much a cartoon yeah i mean it literally there is an entire scene of that movie that is quite literally a cartoon so yeah yeah exactly. and it's great whereas i think this movie it would be interesting to see what where we would be with tarantino if this film was one of his bigger successes is the thing i always think like because at the time it was kind of a flop not in not in a disastrous sense, no, but, but it was comparatively kind of following on, yeah, yeah following on from Pulp Fiction, people were kind of eh, you know it was it was seen as a bit of a of a downgrade, which is interesting now because now the film bro opinion is like oh actually this is the secret masterpiece, which I, I don't think I necessarily agree with, but I think there is an element of like I'd be interested to see if this movie had been as successful as Pulp Fiction, where we'd be with Tarantino? Would he have gone? so cartoonish with Kill Bill and kind of been plugging that um, vein for so long or would he have would he have stayed with the more real characters because I was actually watching this movie with a friend of the pod Abby Blabby last night and um, we were kind of saying the thing that's interesting about this movie is this is the movie of his that feels most like a Paul Thomas Anderson yeah I know exactly what you mean actually yeah they both kind of have they they have a bit of a friendship rivalry if people don't know Mm. Um, and uh, this movie definitely has that element of like it's not overly concerned with plot which is like that very Paul Thomas Anderson thing of like there's a story but we'll we'll fucking get to it when we yeah, get like, to it yeah like we're just here with these people and uh, we're just going to see what happens with them yeah. for a bit yeah I think the difference in energy is like when you watch a PTA movie you're off like they're, they're kind of both like this is a hangout movie I think with the PTA movies, you're always hanging out with a crowd that you don't really want to hang out with. <laughs> and like, that's where the that's where the tension kind of comes from. Whereas this movie, I think, is lacking tension a little bit. Um, it certainly has its moments. Yeah, I think um, you know, Ordell can be quite terrifying in some ways. Um, and obviously, Lewis kind of you know his random murder of Melanie towards the end is. Uh, Darkly humorous, but also very tense. I mean, it's it's humorous because he just does it in broad daylight in a parking lot. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah. so out of nowhere. I mean, to be fair, she is really annoying in that scene. She is grinding his gears. Yeah, and she has been for a few days. Which Mark believes means that you deserve death. No, no. Oh, sorry, it's only, only if you're a woman. There we go, that's better. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not Dis- at all, not at all. Disclaimer. Disclaimer, Mark's beliefs do not reflect the beliefs of Kino <laughs> But those are Mark's sincerely held How de- that actual That's the second time today you've slandered me. That's what that is. <laughs> um, anyway, moving on. So, plot mechanics-wise, basically the whole thing hinges on a bag switch at a um, department store. Yes. Yeah, so... uh, Odell thinks he's getting his money, but he's not. He's going to get a little bit and some books. The ATF think they're getting Ordell's money, but they're also not. And uh, Jackie palms the money off on Max. Long story short, the deception is eventually figured out by Ordell, um, who turns up to whack Jackie. The uh, Michael Keaton whacks him first. 
uh, pretty much end of movie after that. Yeah, Jackie that gets away with the money. She goes to Spain. Um, her and Max have one last little smooch, uh, which I kind of like. Yeah. I like that it's you know that they they have this kind of romance, but it doesn't it doesn't have the typical ending of like let's you know come to Spain with me. They don't do that. It's more of like a we'll yeah. get back to this at some point. I like that. Well, Jackie is kind of an interesting take on the femme fatale archetype, right? Because she has that thing of she's playing everyone against each other. But there is this slight twist that, as much as she definitely deliberately seduces Max, as certainly my read, it is a there is genuine feeling between. Them. Oh yeah, absolutely, and again, yeah, like it's those little scenes of their discussions about things like music and getting mm. older and stuff. But you know, there's yeah. definitely like a kinship between them. And I think one of my favorite little moments in the movie is where you see Max go to uh, a record store and buy the album that Jackie showed yeah, him, and the, you see him listening to it. Delphonics. And, and then he then also has that scene with Ordell where they're in the car and he's listening to it, and Ordell's like, "I didn't know you liked this band." Like this, you know, it's nice little things like that that yeah. I really enjoy in this film. Um, what? Yeah, that is kind of what I think is does really work about this movie is those those little character nuances. Yeah, and it is that thing of just like if you get enough good actors together with half decent material, you kind of got a movie, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like there's no slouches in the acting department in this. But. No, and I think there's the the one thing that really stands out to me about this film compared to a lot of other Tarantino stuff as well is he really employs the long take in this film to brilliant effect. Yeah, like yeah. He obviously he did that a lot in like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, but here like he lets entire scenes play out in single shots. Oh, yeah, and this movie, by the way, um, obviously Tarantino is a big Brian De Palma fan. This movie is De Palma out the ass, Oh, yeah, right? split like, screen so up the, the dick hole. Split screens, the long takes. Um, there's that shot where Jackie walks into the department store from a low angle that kind of follows yep. her through. That's totally De Palma. Yep. Um, the... And also, like, I think one thing that really, that I think it's not just aimless homage either, like, I think he's playing on that Brian De Palma sense of like paranoia that all his movies have, yeah. where the characters don't trust each other. They all think they're out to get each other. There's this kind of back and forth between everyone. Like even when Lewis shoots Melanie, there's even a point where Ordell starts to think, "Well, hang on a minute. You supposedly shot her in broad daylight. You've just given me a bag that has like, you know, ten yeah. grand on top and a bunch of paperback books on the bottom." Are you are you for real? Is Melanie actually just hiding out in like a toilet somewhere, waiting for you to come back with the money? Like, uh, you know, and it's like it's that level of like, uh, it definitely. I think the kind of um, De Palma homage comes in both in the shooting style and in that sense of like, who's trusting who? Obviously, very film noir, but like very kind of. Yeah, he, he kind of utilizes that style to bring that out, I think. Yeah, and I um, think it's just again like you say like he's got such a good cast in this movie that he doesn't need to constantly cut between them. Like he can just set up a camera and no. let them just let he he, yeah. he he lets the actors speak for the material, I think, and that's what's so good about it. Yeah. And I that's one of the reasons why I like this film so much and you know, you know me like Brian De Palma is my favorite director. So anything that's evocative of his mm. style, um it's always uh, good by me. But I think the actual like heist scene itself is really well constructed. Um, I like the... Even though it's obviously it's the oldest trick in the book with heist, but obviously when you keep seeing it from the different perspectives and you're just seeing it all play out, yeah. that's all really well done. Um, I mean, you also have the trope of because they have the dry run of the money delivery. Yes. And that is a heist trope, right, where you set up how it's going to work and then you show how it goes yeah. wrong. 
And again, like this movie doesn't rely on the heist elements as much as what, say, Inception does. It's yeah. more focused. It's kind of the opposite in the sense where, like, this is way more focused on character and you know, yeah, yeah. like letting the letting it all breathe a little bit. Because I think that's probably one thing with Inception is like it doesn't it doesn't have much breathing room for a long movie, whereas this kind of is a little bit more breezy. Yeah, it's fairly laid back for a for a heist. Film. Yeah, and I think I like the fact that the heist isn't the isn't just like the end of the movie as well. Like it comes sort of around the climax of the second act, yeah. start of the third act, which I think is. And I will say we we're talking about the pacing. I think the movie kind of lurches into life when the sting operation starts to happen. I think it is the second act that's the issue for me. Is kind of draggy. There is a lot of. It's. I mean, this is the thing. It's a Tarantino movie, so you can't avoid this. It's very talky. Yes, it is. Um, and sometimes that really works in his stuff, and sometimes not so much. Um, I'm looking at you, Death Proof. Yeah. As a movie with an yeah. entirely too much chat. Um, this movie, I don't think, is necessarily bordering on that, but like as I say, I think because Tarantino is trying to hew as close to the Leonard novel as possible, he's maybe not injecting the usual pizzazz that he does. That said, there are some great exchanges. Uh, the dialogue, when it's when it's not just being people talking about what's going to happen, explaining the plot to each other, when it is the characters just kind of chatting, like like the scene where they're watching the girls with guns video and stuff, or like when uh, Ordell and Lewis are at the bar discussing how Lewis has been uh, fucking Melanie and stuff, like those oh like like you know with Beaumont with the whole discussion of like well. You, I'm home, I'm high, well, who got you home? <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. And I'm a big fan, I think the scenes between um, Robert Forster and Samuel L. Jackson in the bail bonds office are just, it's just two great actors acting greatly at each other. Yeah, I um, I'm a, especially love that gag uh, where he looks at the photo that Cherry has with, with, uh, yeah, with, with Tiny, Tiny List. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very funny. Who, by the way, um, by the way, a little crossover here, has a cameo role in The Dark Knight. I don't even remember. He that. does, yes. So, I right. mostly know him from Friday, which uh, where we did our April twentieth yeah. special. Well, when me and Abdul were joking about this, that uh, Christopher Nolan is like, you know who we could get for this role? Have any of you guys seen Friday? <laughs> I would not be surprised if Mr. Nolan likes Friday. That is a, a damn well, fine. I, I will say, I know we're not talking about Nolan right now, but I, I think he, it might be because we know he's a big fan of. Uh, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, for example. That's that that has to be a joke. Um, Nobody thinks Tokyo Drift is the best one. <laughs> Nolan does, man. He's seen them really? all. But, um, but also, uh, hilariously, when he first met Tom Hardy, uh, he was going like, oh yeah, I just saw your movie. I thought you were really excellent in it. A wonderful performance really made me want to work with you. And Tom was there thinking, oh, well, he's talking about Bronson. Obviously, that's like the last movie I did. Turned out he was talking about Guy Ritchie's Rock and Roller. <laughs> Which Tom Hardy is in for like two scenes playing a gangster who comically comes out as gay. Um, now, I don't know about you, but that makes me love Big Chris more. <laughs> anyway, we're talking about QT. Um, yeah, so this film, I guess I want to pick your brains on like, do, do you think this film deserves its kind of slightly. Uh, film bro reputation as being like the secret hidden good one yes and no in, in the sense that I think this movie is definitely worthy of reappraisal because I'm pretty sure when it came out it got mostly positive notes but it was never 
too fondly looked at. I know that Mark Commode has said that this is his favourite Tarantino movie. But it should be pointed out that Commode is not a fan of uh, Yeah, exactly. Movies. So the fact that this is the least Tarantino of the Tarantino movies, you know, is not surprising that he likes it. Um, no, I think it's... I'm glad it's getting more of a reappraisal, and I think it definitely deserves more um, respect within Tarantino's filmography, because I think it is one of his strongest films. It does have some issues, like we've talked about, but... I think it's some of his best work, particularly when it comes to just, like, letting the actors do the work and, you know, just letting the film breathe and not getting too bogged down in everything being a film homage and stuff like that. You know, I feel like it's a... Weirdly, for how sort of breezy it is, it's quite a focused film. Even though, like, down to the soundtrack, the soundtrack is a lot more precise in this film than what you get in most of his other stuff. Uh, Yeah, I think I agree with that for the most part. I think what I will say is, like, this movie... What I always find to be a bit of a letdown about this movie is how, and this kind of feels weird to say this about uh, uh, Jackie Brown, but like how relatively unstylized it is compared to Tarantino's other movies. Yeah, I know. I what feel you like mean. it's missing a certain flair. Like there's some scenes that I think really well, and like we've talked about the use of the long takes and stuff that's really cool. I think there's long stretches of this movie that are just kind of a little flat. Um, and this is before Tarantino started working with his um, go-to cinematographer whose name I'm not just looking up right now. <laughs> not in any way. I remembered it off the top of I my mean, head. I it, mean, it's weird as well, because like I feel like Jackie Brown, it feels more low-budget than his previous films, but it wasn't. It was a higher-budget film. Yeah, precisely, and that's kind of what I mean. Like, It has a kind of low-rent feel to it, and I'm not sure if that's just him trying to emulate the kind of tone of exploitation movies but oh Robert Richardson is the name that I was trying to think of who Tarantino starts working with with uh, Kill Bill and has worked with ever since um, he of the uh, slightly unmotivated spotlights fame but um, but, that, that, but like the Tarantino movies after this start to have that look of like slightly spaghetti western ish and they have the you know the, the back the, like the blown out backlights yep. and the kind of the spotlights in the center of the room and stuff like that and like that is kind of like as much as uh you know people who are slightly older cinephiles than us would probably associate um tarantino most with like reservoir dogs and pulp fiction and the look of that to me the style of tarantino is very much that style that he develops with robert richardson of like the very um i don't quite know how to, how to put it, but like the very filmic yeah the very like filmic cinema with a capital C look that he starts to develop. Later yeah, on. I think from Kill Bill onwards, it was very much like cinema spectacle, whereas his earlier stuff was mm. more like you know, smaller cinema or like VHS rental kind of thing. Like, it was a bit more, yeah, a bit more downplayed. It's very much in the context of 90s, the 90s independent boom as well, like, that kind of slightly unvarnished style is very uh, indicative of like your Kevin Smiths. And yeah, so exactly. Like, well, Miramax, generally, this, you know. Yeah, like, well, Miramax yeah. in general, yeah. <laughs> um, which, you know, it kind of um, exists in its context. I just don't know. I think Jackie Brown kind of is a little bit too much that way for me. Like, I almost want it to feel a little more tightly constructed from a cinematography point of yeah, view. Yeah, I, I see exactly um, what you mean, especially given what we know of Tarantino now and what he does now. I think it, this film does yeah. feel a little bit lifeless, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I I really do like this movie. I think 
I feel like when some people go, oh, it's his last masterpiece and it's his best, best movie, and I'm like, um, no, 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 there are there are cases to be made for some of those aspects being true, but I wouldn't go so far as to be like, it's a complete masterpiece because it's not, it's got some problems, and I don't think it's his best movie because Kill Bill Volume 1 exists, so what's your take on this? I mean, I this? personally well, would I go for, well, if we're talking about the best Tarantino movie, I mean, we're both kind of Tarantino fans, right? Um, yeah, I don't like worship the ground the guy walks on or anything. I think he's a, he's no, a, good, no, a great director like, and a good writer. And yeah, I think you know, for me, my, well, my take on Tarantino in general, I suppose, is like I was very into Tarantino when I first started getting into film properly. I suppose as as a team. Yep. Yep. Um, and I still, I still am. You know, a lot of my, a lot of I enjoy watching his movies, um, and I, I think like. He's never less than entertaining. Because even Death Proof, which I think is quite shit, has its moments. Uh, the the <laughs> final car chase in Death Proof is yeah. fantastic. It yeah, makes sitting through all that boring shite almost worth it. Almost yeah. worth it. Yeah, not, not worth it, but yeah, almost like, worth when it. When that car chase kicks in, it's like I'm fully into yeah. that film. But it just takes about um, two hours yeah, before so, that happens. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I'm even an, an apologist for movies like The Hate of the Late, which I think people are a bit split on. Still um, the only one of his filmography I've never seen. Uh, we might watch it for this at some point. But, um, the It's fucking long, though. Yeah, that's why I haven't seen it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, that aside, for me, my personal favourite Tarantino is Inglorious Bastards. Which I think is um, a solid choice, and yeah. you could easily justify that in numerous ways. To me, he's never really topped that since. I think he's made very good, entertaining, uh, interesting movies since then. But um, if I was to make a comparison that is not particularly apt, but kind of explains my personal feelings, I think Inglorious Bastards, for me, is to Tarantino what the Grand Budapest Hotel is to Wes Anderson. In the sense that people always go with Tarantino, they always go, well, Pulp Fiction's his best movie, right? Or some people say Jackie Brown, the general consensus Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Among the normies, right? Yeah. But um, the... Um, or at least that's his most kind of... His early movie that became incredibly influential. And, yeah, very uh, much think, kind of set the idea of what his films yeah. are and what the core his, elements Yeah, of precisely. And, like, if you're parodying Tarantino, you're parodying Pulp Fiction, ultimately, at the end of the day. With maybe a bit of Reservoir Dogs and a bit of Kill Bill thrown in. But, um... And I kind of feel like with... with Wes Anderson has a similar thing where, like... Uh, the Royal Tenenbaums is the one that people always kind of point to, like, oh, well, that's the good one, that's the one. And that's kind of the one that cemented his thing in the yeah. eye of the public. It was his breakthrough, essentially. Yeah. And also it's the film that, like, if you're parodying the aesthetic of Wes Anderson, most of what you're pulling from is um, the Royal Tenenbaums. However, I think where the comparison for me comes in with Grand Budapest is, like, to me, Inglorious Bastards and Grand Budapest, although they may not be the early... Or the the earliest or the most influential iteration of that style, they are the kind of apex of that style of each creative. If that makes sense, like they are, they kind of represent a creative peak for both directors. But I, I don't think it's a case of like they'll never reach it again. That mm. kind of aspect, I think, it's that thing of like it represents them uh, kind of reaching a point of like this is what they've always been trying to do. This is what they've been getting at for some time. 
And I feel like Inglorious Bastards is that for Tarantino, was my long-winded analogy there. No, I, I agree with you, but that's kind of how I feel about Kill Bill. I feel like, yeah, to yeah, me, yeah. Kill I, Bill... I can see that, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, Kill Bill to me is, like, the perfect distillation of everything that Tarantino is capable of doing, wants to do, loves doing. Like, the main thing about Tarantino is, like, ultimately he does cherry-pick from a lot of his favourite films and influences. Yeah, like, yeah. you know, he's he, he spins into something original, but, you know, most things in his movies, even in Inglorious Bastards, you know, like, it's all lifted from something. Um, and yeah, that, it's like spaghetti westerns and, yeah, and, it's, and spy, the, spy thrillers and stuff. Yeah, there's so many points of reference that he just pays tribute to. Whereas Kill Bill is just, like, literally bursting at the seams with that shit. Like, every single thing yeah. in that movie is, like, a love letter to something else. Like, even down to, like, Hattori Hanzo being a character from an yeah, old TV yeah. series. You know, stuff like that. And, uh, the yellow and I will say, scene. like... This argument is usually resolved by how recently I've seen Kill Bill or Inglorious Bastards. Like, that's, if yeah. I just watched if I just watched Kill Bill yesterday, I'd probably be saying that's the best one. I should also say that for the benefit of the listeners, uh, I wrote my dissertation uh, about Inglorious Bastards. Mostly, it was about war propaganda, but don't don't worry about it. It's yeah. a bad dissertation, but. But so so like I'm very like it's one of those things where I've probably lost the ability to look at that movie objectively in any way, right? Like yeah. I watched it approximately a thousand times in the third uni in my third year of uni because I was writing about it so much. And I'm the reason I love Kill Bill so much is because Kill Bill Volume One was the movie that made me interested in movies. In the sense, yeah, of, certainly I can see that. Yeah, certainly I, can I see saw that. that and it kind of blew my young mind when I saw it. I don't know how old it was. Mm. My, my dad rented it because my dad likes uh, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and stuff. Um, so I remember mm. seeing that movie and was fucking blown away by it. To the point where like that was the first time I properly watched bonus features and stuff because I was just fascinated yeah, by this movie. Yeah. And this that's the reason why I'm interested in film and why I've kind of gone down some of the paths that I have. So yeah, I'm kind of like nice. you in that sense where like Kill Bill means I'm, a lot to me. I mean, Kill Bill means a lot to me too. I, I will say like... Um, this is a confession that I don't think I've ever admitted to my parents, but Kill Bill came along at a time when um, it was like 2004, right? So um, uh, 2003 was Volume One, I believe, because right, right, Volume okay. Two was 2004. So I forget how old I was when we had the the DVD in the house. But I remember being unreasonably, unduly intrigued by this movie because it had you know the yellow cover. This yeah. is the first volume anyway. It had the yellow cover. Had uh, you know Uma Thurman with the samurai sword. It was called Kill Bill, and it just had the roaring rampage of revenge as the tagline. Uh-huh. And I remember being just unreasonably intrigued by this movie. Like it was one of those things where I was like, I need to see this. And I was I was definitely too young to reasonably watch. Oh, it. Oh, same. I should parents, not have seen that film uh, at the age I did. <laughs> um, my parents were, you know, un- unlike with the Terminator franchise, as we've established, they were like, maybe this one's a little too hardcore. So, um, I've, I don't think I've ever admitted this right, but I skived off from school for two days in a row so that I could watch Kill Bill Volume 1 on the Thursday and Volume 2 on the Friday, quickly replace the boxes and put them back on the shelf before anyone realised that I'd done it, right? That's honestly um, amazing. I love that so much. Only for a couple of months later, I had a friend staying around and we were, and we were saying, oh, what movie should we watch? What movie should we watch? Uh, and then for my mum to go, do you know what? I think you can watch Kill Bill. I think it's fine. <laughs> That's so great. I love that story. And I can't wait to know what your mother thinks about you skipping school. No, I can't either because uh, me and Dean will come down on me like a ton of bricks. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, I think my final point on Jackie Brown is exemplified by the last 10 minutes or so of this podcast 
we've spent more time talking about Tarantino in general than we have about Jackie Brown. Um, and I think that's kind of where I'm at with this movie. Is like, um, I like it, I would recommend it. I don't know if I'd bother recommending it to people who aren't that into Tarantino. I think it's more of a curio for like... This is a movie that's slightly atypical but still has the same kind of rhythm of his movies, you know. Um, I don't you know, I don't think it's a bad movie by any stretch of the imagination. I'll probably watch it a few more times before I shuffle off this mortal coil. Um, unless you've got anything to add, shall we launch into Kino or Inferno? <laughs> no, not really. I mean, I've, I'm glad I've, you know, brought the movie to the show because yeah. I think it was... It's one that I just wanted to talk about because nobody really does... Um, and also yeah. the fact that you know we've not really touched on Tarantino much on the show before, so this no. definitely gives us a chance to discuss him a bit more at length. Um, yeah, but no, I don't know. I think yeah, you know, I like this movie a lot. I always enjoy it when I watch it. Yeah, it's a bit long, but yeah. great performances, really good soundtrack. Um, yeah, if nothing else, it is a great uh, actors' movie. I think. Yeah, and those you, go a long you, way. You could that. learn a lot about acting from this movie. I mean. This is the one thing I do think... Well, not the one thing, but this is one thing that I do think this movie um, does really well, is just letting the actors perform. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, that's kind of an element that does recall, like I was saying earlier, like the Paul Thomas Anderson thing. Like That is something I think is definitely true of his movies too, and the, what kind of is reminiscent of his movies in this film. is like... it. The scenes do just kind of set up a camera and let the, let the actors do their thing. Um... Personally, from a Tarantino movie, I want a little bit more oomph to the directing, I think. Um, maybe, that's unfair, maybe that's an unfair thing to bring to this individual movie. Um, maybe if I didn't know it was directed by Tarantino, I'd, I'd enjoy it more, perhaps. But um, again, not to bring the Wes Anderson comparison back, but it'd be kind of like seeing a Wes Anderson movie that just was shot kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know? <laughs> it might still be a good movie, but you'd be there going... There's a Wes Anderson movie? Like, what? Would, would you say <laughs> yeah. this is uh, Tarantino's Darjeeling... Well, yeah, would you say this is like the Darjeeling Limited in that sense, then, if you're comparing it to Wes Anderson? Because that's the one Wes Anderson movie I've seen that I was a bit like, eh, about. If we're belaboring this point of comparing Anderson to Tarantino, then yes, I suppose I am. <laughs> um, I will say, to Anderson's credit, he rarely goes above 90 minutes, so that's something he has on Tarantino. Yes, that's and in very the occasion, true. And the occasions he does, he's always under two hours, so I respect that's that. That's very true, and I feel like Tarantino is... He wouldn't cut stuff. That He seems like a, he's not willing to kill his darlings, as it were, I think. Well, this is something that we can discuss, because obviously this movie, edited by the uh, sadly departed Sally Menk... Um, who Tarantino, uh, so this is the editor, Sally Mank, yeah, yeah. who Tarantino has referred to multiple times as his most significant collaborator. Um, and fuck me, mate, when you get to like the Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you see that he is not just blowing smoke up our ass. Oh, yeah. Because, oh, those movies, like, because like, if you compare that to like Bastards, that's a long movie, but that's a tight movie. Oh, yeah. Like that, move, that movie rocks along at a decent pace. And as much as I love Django, you can't fucking say that about that movie, right? Like, that is a movie that is not in a hurry, baby. <laughs> um, and it's kind of the same with Hateful Eight, although Hateful Eight, you could argue, uses it for more suspense and stuff. But like, 
Once Upon a Time in Hollywood definitely is a movie in search of an editor, as much as I enjoyed that film. Yeah, and I, I feel and like I, it might just be worth, just before we get into the final part of it, just, you know, to really sort of shine a light on Sally Bank as well, because she mm. really was the kind of soul of what Tarantino did back in those days. Like, her editing yeah. is the reason why his films are yeah. so... just and For all his crafty. bluster and, you know, notorious egocentrism... He has always shouted out uh, Sally as a, as a top collaborator, as someone who shaped his films uh, more than anyone else. You know, yeah. Um, bearing in mind this is this is a guy who normally refuses to let a composer work on his movies because he thinks that's giving people too much control. He, you know, the fact that he was able to find this editor who he got along with so well and like, i've seen interviews with uh, mank where she was talking about first working with tarantino um and she she fought for getting onto reservoir dogs because she'd seen the the rushes for this movie um rushes for people who don't know unedited footage um or roughly edited yeah, footage, yeah. Right? um and she'd seen the you know she'd basically seen the movie in its kind of uh unpasteurized form let's say and she was kind of going like uh you know, she she in this interview was saying like I knew this movie was going to be big, but only if certain things were put into play. Like she was like I could see the images in my head and I couldn't get them out of my head, and I needed I physically needed to get in there and be like, just trim that down, put that there, put yeah, that yeah, there. yeah. And you know, I think that's the energy that Tarantino always respected about her. Um, I get the sense that they were they were genuine great friends. Yeah, and that's always nice to see. That's always nice to see in Hollywood because it's such a fucked up world, right? And he, uh, yeah, he, uh, you know, if you see interviews where he talks about her after her passing, it's something that clearly affected her. Because I think she died in, like, a hiking accident or something. Like, it was, um... I've seen an interview with him where he talks about it, and he says, you know, it was a stupid, preventable death. And he, it clearly it clearly affected him very deeply. Um, which is sad, obviously. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's nice for an editor to be part of the legend i suppose of a, of a great filmmaker in the way that they normally not you know yeah. i mean i know we have examples now where people have retrospectively gone back to um for example marshall lucas on star wars yeah, yeah. um it's a surprise that these people are always women and they're always overlooked oh let's not go there yeah but, I, um, I did want to briefly <laughs> kind of touch on that um but yeah no. yeah but to to tarantino's credit for his many many faults he has always uh, boosted sally's work um, there's also a really nice video you can find on the um, DVD or Blu-ray of Inglorious Bastards, and it's also probably on YouTube as well, um, which is the Hello Sally reel. Basically, whenever the actors fuck something up, they turn to the camera and just say, Hello Sally, um, which I, was, I thought was quite nice. It's quite a nice tribute to her, given that that was her last movie. Yeah. Um, you know, And it also gives you the sense that like, as much as certain aspects of Tarantino's professional life have been under question lately and rightfully so he does seem like he's fun to work with and it seems like the collaborators that he works with frequently you know they become dear friends to him and um you know that's that's something that i, I think I, I always like about filmmakers i'm filmmaking you know i'm some occasional filmmaker myself yeah I uh, yeah, completely uh, see what you mean. Again, and and that's another reason why I love Kill Bill Volume One so much as well is because that is such a display of a filmmaker completely indulging in everything that they love about cinema and just making something that's incredibly yeah. fun and polished and 
you can tell that that film was a great experience for people involved in it. But obviously, what we then later yeah. sort of found out about Volume well, Two, yeah, so you bit, know. A bit of a mixed bag yeah, for yeah, uh, for old for old Uma, yeah, but, uh, which is a shame. But obviously, from what yeah. I gather, that's been uh, they've patched things up. I mean, you know, her daughter appeared in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, so uh, the lovely Mayor Hawk, who it, ha- it needs to be said, looks exactly like a face blend of Uma Thurman and. Ethan she really does, doesn't she? There's... To a level that when I'm watching Stranger Things season four, which is out now on Netflix, just to date the episode, <laughs> I, I can't really focus on what she's saying in that because I'm just like, it is so. It is. I mean, I know that they're her parents, so it makes sense. But like, you very rarely see someone who's so mm, is a blend of both parents in that way. I was, it's just like somebody shared a photo recently of Uma Thurman when she was the same age as Maya, and it is mm. uncanny how much they look mm. alike. It really is, uh, which is why you know, even though it probably will never happen, but you know, if Tarantino gets his way and oh, Kill Bill Volume Three is made, we all know who needs to play the daughter. You know. Yes. 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 Uh, I don't think that'll happen, to be honest. I don't think it will, but I live in hope that one day I'll see a fully blind Daryl Hannah sword fighting Uber Furman again. (laughs) I don't know that I want it, is my thing. We don't need it, this is the thing. There was a time when I definitely did, and there's part of me that's kind of like, it would be kind of fun if Tarantino bowed out making the third part of the trilogy. Because obviously, well, according to him, his next film is going to be his last film. I don't know how much I buy that, to be honest. No, and let's put it this way. I, as much as I adore both Kill Bill movies, I don't need a third one because the story yeah. is over. If he's going to give me one, I will accept I'm it. I'm almost a bit like, as, as flawed a film as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, that almost felt like the swan song to me. When I was watching it, I was kind of like, oh, that might be it, actually. And now there's part of me that's a bit like... Do, do I want there to be more? Is it going to be like hanging around at the party after everyone's left? Like personally, and I, I mean, I kind of do. I will say yeah. this as a just as like a final point because we should wrap up because we've just talked about Tarantino <laughs> for the last time. Yeah, uh, we talked about Jackie Brown a little bit. That's true. That's very true. Um, I was not a big fan of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Personally speaking, I thought it was a bit overlong. I mm. uh, thought, even though yeah, just 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 a bit. Yeah, it's a bit overlong. Even though it was a fantastic display for all the actors involved, and they get some incredible mm. scenes, and you get some incredible performances out of them, it just it kind of it, I, I faded in and out of it, and I, I just really wasn't that keen on it. The ending is fucking spectacular. I gotta be said, mm. <laughs> that finale is. I think wild. The, the the visuals in general, like the kind of world building of sixties Hollywood, is very well done. I think, yeah, yeah, movie. I agree with you there, and I think, I, I, yeah, I think it's. I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just if that is to be his last film, I would rather it not be. If that makes sense. Yeah, I'd rather he bow out on something that. else other than that. <laughs> I can see that, but I think the way it kind of went through, like, like it has the Bruce Lee moment and it has the Western moment and it has all these, yeah, it's... Kind of, and it kind of and you know it like refers back to bastards in one scene and it refers back to all this stuff and like the way it was kind of pointing at everything that he's done up to this point kind of made me think, uh, okay, this this is this might be it, and the fact that he was pulling in other actors. To the point where Tim Roth is cut out of the movie, but is deliberately credited as in the movie, which I found pretty <laughs> funny. Is that it literally says in the credits like Tim Roth as so and so, then it says brackets not appearing, which I thought was hilarious. But um, yeah, I mean, 
it, personally, I'd like to see him do one more like like a Reservoir Dogs kind of a low key. Yeah, just something a bit less... more pure Tarantino. I think would be nice to yeah. say. Uh, but so wrapping this up, Jackie Brown, what we say? Uh, I think I'm going to have to give it like a soft Kino. Like this is not a movie that I'm like super in love with. It's a movie that I like a lot. It's the kind of thing where I will say this because it's so long. Um, I, I rarely actually sit down and watch it, but when I am flicking through channels and Jackie Brown is playing on uh, ITV or Five Star as it often is, I'll usually give it a watch from the moment that I tune in to the end or near enough to the end. Yeah. So in that regard, you know, I obviously like this movie quite a bit. Uh, talking about Tarantino's oeuvre, it's not my go-to. Talking about it as an individual film, I like it a lot. There's great performances, as you say. Actors that I like a lot, as you know, Robert De Niro, Samuel L. Jackson, um, Michael Keaton, to name but a few. I mean, the entire cast is fantastic. But if you're talking about like my personal, yeah, you know, fav- favorite actors, you know, the, there's there's a few of them in this movie. Um, Chris Tucker, of course. I mean, um, you, you know, Chris Tucker's good in this movie, but it it will never be the performance that he was so wrongly snubbed for. Oh yeah, well, watch this space. Watch eh? this Uh, fucking space. (laughs) I mean, the thing that's interesting about this episode, just as a tangent before you get to your thoughts, we've got a few people who are coming back. I mean, uh, we've obviously got Lucas Haas that we referred to earlier. Mm -hmm. We've got uh, Pam Greer, who's in the same movie as him. Mm -hmm. Um, We've got Tiny Lister and Chris Tucker, Mm -hmm. who both appear a few movies down the line. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying we've got some... We've got some irons and some... Fi- I mean, obviously, we've had Michael Keaton already in the Bateman uh, franchise. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just saying, we, we're starting to develop a stable of Kino Inferno favourites. So... There's a few repeat offenders in this series. There is. I mean, I don't really have much else to add because your thoughts on the movie are basically the same as mine. It's a soft Kino in the sense that I really do like this movie. Um, it is where, you know, if it's on, I'll watch it because, you know, it's it's a very easy watch. And you know, if it's a if it's a Sunday afternoon, I, yeah, I could watch this easy. Like it's just. And when I was watching it for this, I was I wasn't giving it my full attention because I've seen it a few times before. But every time it, you know something would something significant in the movie happened, it would grab me again. I'd, you know, to have my attention. So yeah, that's the that's the thing about this movie. It is a hangout movie in the true sense, where it's like you can kind of drift in and out of this movie and still enjoy it pretty pretty well. Like. It doesn't necessarily command your entire attention, but like, it also doesn't require your entire. Yeah, attention. exactly. Like, the scenes, the scenes that it wants you to be grabbed by, you grabbed by, and the rest of the movie is kind of fairly easy breezy. You yeah. Know? So that was a double soft kino from me, mm. and that's one hard and one soft was, kino from you. Yeah, I was thumbing in a hardy and then coming back for a softy. <laughs> You'll say which move. Which. That's that's what they call me. <laughs> Well, that's episode one of series two done. Yeah. We're back in the game. We're back, motherfuckers. We are. So let us know if you liked this episode. Let us know on Facebook, Twitter, all that usual garbage. Mm. Uh, Give us a like. Give Give us us engagement. Yes, give us engagement because we need that. Also, one thing, we mentioned this on the Facebook page as well, but I'll mention it again now. If you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, uh, please do chuck us a star rating because that really yeah, five, does help five stars will do I reckon five stars five will stars do. yeah you can give it less I'd rather you didn't but five stars no 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 if you give it less I will find you there you go like you know you heard it here first you heard it here first 
Uh, no, yeah, do chuck us a star you. rating because it really does help us out. You know, it means that you know we might possibly yeah. be seen by some other people, and they might see like, oh, look, this show's yeah. got a good rating. So definitely do help us out with that. Just as a side note, though, I found some weird podcast rating thing that we were on. Uh, I don't think either of us put us on it. I can't remember what it was called, but it claimed that we were in the top twenty-six percent of podcasts. What? Which um, I think means that there are, you know, about well, a little uh, over seventy percent of uh, podcasts have zero listeners. Is what I must, <laughs> must, must take from that. Um, but come on, we we should probably come on. Let's try and get us into the ten percent, surely. All I'm asking for is, like, 12 more listeners. <laughs> I feel like it's like, yeah, we're in the top 26% of film-related podcasts that are labelled as explicit from the United Kingdom. <laughs> something like that. It's going to be something really Well, we'd niche. probably... Yeah, probably really niche. But, um... No, I think I think it genuinely probably is the case that there's a lot of podcasts out there that have like zero to one. That's very family. true. Yeah, we do. We do. And we have, have like five to six. We we have, <laughs> we have a very small but very loyal and dedicated fan base. And if you're still listening, because mm. I know you are, because you're filthy sluts, like we've already established, we do love you. Yeah. So do we keep do. tuning in. And apart, apart from you, though, apart from you, you can get. Yeah, off. you get fuck off. We know what you did. Yeah, go on. Don't 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 come back. Yeah. The rest of you can stay though. Yeah, um. But, but anyway, you. listen. They can find us on. The internet, you can find us on the streets, but most importantly, you can find us at Twitter at Kino underscore Inferno. You can find us on Facebook, Kino Inferno, YouTube, Kino Inferno. And listen, I've been Aiden. And I've been Mark. Oh, fuck, I haven't got one. And I've been Christopher Nolan. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. Uh, I know I sound a little bit like Joanna Lumley, um, but that's okay. Watch my next film. It's about a train that explodes in slow motion. Anyway, I'm going to be live streaming The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift. <laughs> if anyone wants to join me, Christopher Nolan. Fantastic, Rick! Yeah, Morty, if you like that. Boy, you're really gonna flip your lid over this one. Whoa, 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 whoa. What is it? It's a device, Morty, that when you put it in your ear, you can enter people's dreams, Morty. It's just like that movie that you keep crowing about. You talking about Inception? That's right, Morty. This is gonna be a lot like that, except, you know, it's gonna... Maybe it makes sense. Inception made sense? You don't have to try to impress me, Morty. Listen, tonight we're gonna go into the home of your math teacher, Mr. Goldenfold. And we're, we're gonna incept the idea in his brain to give you A's in math, Morty. That way you can... You know, you're gonna help me with my science, Morty, all the time. Jeez, Rick, in the time it took you to make this thing, couldn't you have just, you know, helped me with my homework? Are you listening to me, Morty? Homework is stupid. The whole point is to get less of it. Just, come on, let's just get over there and deal with this thing. Except your teacher, you're frustrating me.